just watching, we just took a little uh, peek into the Charlie Crist, Ron DeSantis debate. I, I never have it in me to watch any of the. I don't watch debates because they're not real debates. Um, I'd love to watch a real debate. It's like, somewhat theatrical, I guess you would say. Yeah, it's silly. And it's not like I'm going to, it's just them pop poking at each other. It's not a real debate. If there was a real debate, like a la how Hitch used to do it back in the day, like a real, I love that. Like if you were going to do like a real good debate, like with debate rules and really do it. And it's an issue where there's two different sides that are injured, like a real debate, I'd be into it. But these are not real debates. This is not a debate. This is political theater. Well, let's see how much political theater there is, because there is only 10 minutes left. And obviously we'll get a closing statement, see if there's any real impact. Uh, it's I've watched most of the debate. It's been very interesting, to say the least. Um, I would definitely say DeSantis is winning the debate, but it's not a clear cut runaway. Charlie's had a couple of moments. I think everybody and that's the other thing about debates. It's like clouds. Everybody sees what they want to see. That's true. I I feel like I've watched debates where to me there was a clear winner and there are other people who thought the other person was the clear winner. So that just means it's just sort of like confirmation bias. Like you're just watching to confirm your your pick. I personally have already voted. But even if I hadn't, there's not much this is going to make a no, difference. No, like, am I going to, does anybody imagine a universe where I'm sitting in a debate between Charlie Chris and Ron DeSantis and one of them says something so eye opening that I'm like, oh my God, I <laughs> never thought of that. I, I'm all, I've, I've changed no, my mind. Let's, let's see if the audience has anything okay. they'd like to think about that. So we'll see. Do we have time for one more question? We do. Continuing now on the topic of public safety, earlier this month, Nicholas Cruz, who confessed to murdering 17 students and staff at Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School on February 14th, 2018, was sentenced to life in prison. You have both said that he should have received the death penalty, but legal scholars and at least one juror blamed Florida law for sparing his life. If elected, will you take action to change existing law why or why not, Congressman? What I would do in this case, listen, these are not easy decisions. Uh, I served as governor. I signed death warrants. Governor DeSantis has as well. It's not a fun day, but it's an important thing to do. As I told you earlier, you need to carry out the law. As it applies to this particular case, this is one thing we actually agree on. I believe that that young man should have gotten the death penalty for killing 17 innocent students in our schools. It was absolutely abhorrent. Uh, and you have to do what's right. Uh, and it's a tough thing sometimes. But whatever it takes to make sure that we can enforce those laws that say there are consequences to your actions, we need to be able to enforce them and get it done right. Governor. I think he deserved the ultimate punishment. When you murder in cold blood 17 innocent people, there's no other punishment uh, that meets the gravity of that crime. And to have one juror hold out on that was a travesty. So yes, I'm going to ask the Florida legislature to amend that statute so that one juror doesn't have veto power over appropriate punishment. But I'll tell you this, when that happened, I wasn't governor yet. It was the year before, but I became friends with a lot of the families, people like Andy Pollack, Ryan Petty. No one was being held accountable for anything that was going on there. 
I came into office my first week, we suspended the sheriff of Broward County for the ineptitude that was displayed. We called a special grand jury, statewide grand jury, to look into the failures of the school district and other school security failures. That report came back. We've instituted great reforms. We've done a three quarters of a billion dollars for school security. And I was able to remove, suspend four school board members that the grand jury had All said right. were derelict in Governor, the performance of their duties. We brought accountability for those families when no one else would. Congressman, you have the floor, 30 seconds. Those weren't the only people he removed from office. We have a state attorney in Tampa Bay named Andrew Warren that he of his own volition decided to kick out of office and suspend because he actually spoke about what he felt about an issue. That used to be called freedom of speech in this country. And Governor, I know you went to Harvard Law School, but you need to study the Constitution again. When you start removing people from public office, that's the job of the people. He was twice elected state attorney in Tampa Bay, did a great job. And because he voiced something that disagreed with you, you decided to suspend him. That's, That's not good leadership. Congressman, Governor, you have 30 seconds. Yeah, look, I think that this is a very important issue for our country. Prosecutors aren't above the law. They don't have the right to veto duly enacted statutes. I know Charlie Chris supports prosecutors like L.A. and Manhattan that are basically ignoring law and crime is spiking in those areas. I disagree with that. I think in Florida, you can't be a law unto yourself as a prosecutor. Duly enacted statutes must be uh, enforced and we will be much safer as a result of that. So I acted appropriately and I, I would do it again. Thank you. Is all the time we have for questions at this time. Gentlemen, you each have one minute for a closing statement. The coin toss determined that the governor will go last. So please begin, Congressman. I want to thank audience for watching tonight. I love Florida. I love her with all my heart. I want to unite her. I want to bring this state back together and not have a divider as a governor. I want women to have the right to choose and make their own decisions about your body, especially in cases of rape or incest. I want to make Florida more affordable again. When I was governor, I lowered your property insurance. When I was governor, I lowered your property taxes. When I was governor, I made sure that we had an affordable economy, even in a recession. He's raised all these things. He's also raised your taxes. He won't even tell you he'll serve four years if you reelect him. I mean, come on. You deserve better than that. Florida deserves better than that. Thank you very much. Governor. Governor, you have your closing statement now, 60 seconds. Well, thank you. We have accomplished an awful lot over these four years. We have the largest budget surplus in history. We have a 2.5% unemployment, second lowest on record. And we just delivered the biggest tax relief in the history of the state. We've expanded school choice. We've protected parents' rights. And we've done the largest increase in teacher pay in Florida history. And even though it had years of neglect, we made historic restoration for our Everglades and improvements to our water quality because water is the foundation of not just our economy, but our way of life. And then when a once in a century pandemic hit, I led based on facts, not based on fear. Uh, I lifted you up while some like Charlie Chris wanted to lock you down. I took a lot of flack in the process, but through it all, I was always more concerned about protecting your job than I was about saving my own. I took the arrows so you wouldn't have to. Uh, we have, we will continue to fight the good fight. We will continue to run the race. We will continue to keep the faith. We've accomplished an Thank awful you, lot, but we've only begun to fight. God bless you. And I ask for your vote on November 8th. Many thanks to Governor Chris Sununu.
partners, our audience, and the Sunshine Theater. CBS 12 News and Sinclair Broadcaster. I'm Liz Pidantis. Thanks for watching. So there you go. Uh, that is. Uh, oh, yeah. Anyone have their mind changed? Anybody listen to Charlie's platitude sandwich uh, closing? Lana, hop over to, and, to YouTube. And think, oh, my God. I, I just never knew he, he really cared about Florida. Um, that's it. There's my guy. Anyone mind changed from watching this no, but interaction? No. Uh, a number of takeaways from the debate. Yeah, I would say because uh, I watched most of it. Okay. Um, right off the bat, uh, yeah, it's like you need to blaze up to listen to any of this. <laughs> it's all I could do. All right, I had to bring. Right, in, I had to bring in the good stuff. Jen brought in the good stuff. So I did bring in some good stuff. All right, go on. So right off the bat, uh, Charlie redirected. Because uh, he got for, he got the, the coin toss. He won the coin toss. Okay. So initially, the first question was about the economy, and he immediately redirected it to abortion. And that's all he's got. You know, so he's going to redirect it there. Uh, it just it didn't seem like a good redirect. It's like it's like one of those things where if you're going to redirect it to that issue, it kind of has to have a smoother transition. Like right off the bat, if you're going to go there and it's completely out of left field, like it has nothing to do with the discussion that's being had, it doesn't land the same. Like you have to just, you have to pick that moment where you know it's like perfect timing. Oh, I'm going to zing them with this. Well, but the thing is, and I've been saying this all along, is that the only thing that Charlie Chris has is the Roe versus Wade situation. That's it. It's all he's got. Well, I wouldn't say that. He actually did a good job in the, I think it was the second or third question when it came to, you know, the housing crisis in Florida. And he did go into it relatively aggressively, I would say. And as a result, we got sort of a, a mixed response from DeSantis, uh, but one that I wouldn't necessarily say was that bad. The thing that's really interesting about DeSantis that not many people necessarily know, he's very wonky. Like he'll get into responses about issues and you can tell he's an Ivy educated guy. Like he'll really, he'll almost be like Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Like that's how wonky he'll get. And it's, I can see where that will turn people off if he runs for president because most people just totally want to hear somebody but say, I also we're really great. He knows how to play that too. I think he he does that very well. As Political also, chameleon. Perhaps. And well, no, I think his positions are his positions. I don't think that he has been a chameleon. Charlie Crist is a chameleon. He literally was our Republican governor. So, you know, to me, that's much more chameleon like. No, I understand that. Uh, it's look, as Metaopoly is pointing out, and I will point out to all of you. Plus 12. It was a. There was a poll that was released right before the debate began. The average is 10 plus 10 for DeSantis. That's and I'm calling it. I think it's going to be more. I thought it would be more than a 10 point spread. I'm going to say plus 12. I, I think it's going to be significantly worse than polls will ever indicate because there is a huge amount of people on the Democratic side that will support Ron DeSantis and won't say anything about it. That's probably true. I actually met said person at an event who is a lifelong Democrat, an older woman, lifelong, on a board of a Dem club. 
And she would probably not admit to like the general people that she was going to be voting for Ron DeSantis, but she told me she was. Yeah. And so there's going to be a very large unaccounted for DeSantis vote from the Democratic side. Well, as we've talked about, I think Charlie really, I mean, shot himself in the foot. Uh, Which time? Right after he won the primary and said, I don't want the DeSantis voter. Right. They have hate in their heart. And to DeSantis's credit, he brought that up in a very shrewd way during the discussion this evening. That was definitely one of his better moments. I think Charlie's best moment was calling out the fact that DeSantis is clearly running for president yeah. and would not and that's commit. A valid, and that's a valid point. I just yeah. don't think that makes Charlie more palatable to people. Like somebody really might think, well, yeah, maybe DeSantis will run for president in two years, but I think I'd rather have him for two years than commit to someone else. Like, I don't think that's significant enough. Like, I don't think that's enough of a, of a negative that no. it's going to do anything like then I'm calling it now. It's going to be more than 10. I think it'll be um, between seven and 10. That's my prediction. Mm -hmm. I just don't see um, again. It, it's a money factor. It's the fact that the democratic party absolutely met a lot in the state doesn't really <laughs> have um, the infrastructure is extremely weak. Uh, the people who pull the strings of the democratic party in the state of Florida are, not good, led by our congresswoman. Yeah, I was going to say, Metalopoli is uh, asking why hide it, or the Dems, he asks, are the Dems that intolerant of others that you have to hide your true feelings from them? 150%. Well, I would definitely yes, say that um, the discussion, well, again, we're talking about trying to elect, and again, I've met Charlie many times, where he's been the governor before, but he was the governor almost 15 years ago. Uh, if that's not enough, he was the Republican governor. Yeah. Then he switched to an independent, ran for Senate, lost, then ran for governor as a Democrat. The Democrats already tried this before. In 14. In 14, in a red wave kind of year, which in a way says a lot more about Rick Scott than it does about Charlie Crisp because Rick Scott barely won. And then Rick Scott had the advantage. Remember, in the state of Florida, I don't know how it is in other states, but in the state of Florida, it is the governor's race trumps the Senate race by a wide margin. It does. So if you are the if you're the sitting governor and or just running for governor, as it was in 2018, I don't really recall President Trump doing much of anything for Rick Scott. So Rick Scott basically stood behind Ron DeSantis and was able to win the day by a very slim margin against a three term a three term Democratic senator in Bill Nelson. And that was a blue wave year. What I do think is possible in the state of Florida, if any type of change is possible in the next two years, Rick Scott could potentially be knocked off in 24 because he has really gone out of his way. Let's work on that, people. To, to kind of. Goals. Uh, yeah. Goals. Because see, people don't understand. They don't understand. Yeah. Rick Scott is so horrid. He's Voldemort. He's a psychopath. Like this is somebody who should not be anywhere in any position of authority ever. And when people keep calling out DeSantis, like he's so horrible, he's so horrible. I'm like, no, you just don't agree with his politics in a lot of cases. Rick Scott is horrible. Like that is not somebody that we can have. Like any opportunity to get rid of him, I will actually support whoever that, like he is one of those people. He's just that bad. Yeah, we definitely need, um, it's, it's definitely, I think that this is going to be, uh, a very unique 
two weeks and what happens after the fact. And we will discuss that at great length. And we could not have picked a better time to bring on our friend and fellow content creator, Jamal Thomas, to talk about one of the signature issues that isn't really getting enough of what you would call uh, play amongst a lot of these so-called consistent political circles, which is the war in Ukraine. Well, you know what it's going to turn into. I feel like what's going on in Ukraine, at least from like news perspective, is going to be like the next Israel thing, wherein it's like progressives are willing to stand up for everything except for Palestine. Uh, maybe not Ukraine, maybe not, Ukraine. Ah, you know, so it's sort of like going to fall into that category where somehow the our political left, which, again, not the real left, the political left will somehow just look the other way for some reason, because they're just some sort of fear mongery manufactured consent propagandized reason. That's why. Matopoli, uh Val Demings won that debate against Marco Rubio. Let's just keep it. Let's keep it 100 percent. Now, we still don't won. think she's going to win. Who won this debate? Uh, I think it's, I'll give the edge to DeSantis. It was fairly close. Uh, but is it going to change anything regarding the outcome? No. That, that's, that was not what this debate was. No, that it was, wasn't egregious wasn't enough in either direction. Like, there wasn't anything in it that was so in either direction that would change anything. But the significance of the discussion we're going to have now regarding the war in Ukraine is because this afternoon, led by, I believe, Pramila Jayapal, 30 members of the Democratic Progressive Caucus, oh. or is it just the Progressive Caucus, have petitioned the president to st- to formally start negotiations between Russia and Ukraine to end the war. Okay. That's pretty freaking significant, if you ask me. And the biggest reason I believe that this is becoming a talking point is because the polls are showing that the Democrats are getting destroyed on this issue because they think that the war should just continue carte blanche. You make it sound like that's a partisan issue. That's a military issue. Well, that's an everybody with money issue. It definitely is. They don't care. Well, without further ado, we are very pleased to welcome back friend of the show and somebody who definitely knows a thing or two about what is going on in the war in Ukraine. You know him. You love him. Jamal Thomas. Welcome back to Generation of Beige. What is going on, guys? Hey. Good, good. Can good. I bug you for like one minute? I just want to switch over to my computer. My computer yeah, is go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, go for it. It's literally like 30 seconds. All right, no problem. All right, so he'll be back. But uh, yeah. Well, that was a great discussion. But I do know, that was great. But I do know that like a lot of times when we've been canvassing and we've gone places, whether it was in Cleveland or here, that I am noticing in the typical kind of liberal suburban places, the Ukrainian flags. And it's really bothersome to me. It's very frustrating to me because I feel like they're not basing that on facts. No. I, I would bet like everything that the people that are putting up the Ukrainian flags and doing the little filters and on their thing really have no idea what they're talking about. None whatsoever. Uh, I would imagine, listen, the, the average American doesn't know much regarding domestic policy. Right. Think about how much less they know regarding foreign Here, policy. Yeah, here's the thing. I don't know very much about this at all. And I spend between three and four hours a day basically researching things. Well, what general. do you say we talk to somebody who knows something? Yes, about we should. Jamal Thomas, welcome back to Generational Change. Thank you very much. My <laughs> computer. Um, at the last minute decided to do an update or reset or something. And so it started to, yeah, it's aggravated. It's okay. I'm here, the world's good. 
<laughs> Welcome. So, you know, definitely what's going on in Ukraine is, I think, not being covered properly for a change. Obviously, the the mainstream media can't beat their war drums loud enough. And, you know, we all know, we know what that's about. But unfortunately, people are still beholden to that information. And I think that people are very misinformed as to what's really happening. And I really don't know. So I'm hoping you could share that. You could share that with us. Well, considering they've dropped all context um, about the issue, I'm not necessarily shocked. Yeah. It's, it's a super, super weird thing. We are, what, the Cuban Missile Crisis had just passed maybe a few days ago. And the idea, like, basically, the Cuban Missile Crisis was the United States refusing to allow um, Moscow, Warsaw Pact members, to put missiles and weapons in Cuba. The idea being Cuba um, is run by Castro. And if anything pops off, those missiles can basically be used to hit the United States. Everybody understood it. It was very clear. There was a blockade in order to prevent it, even to the point of going to nuclear war. Honest to God, many of those people full well believed that the world was coming to an end um, because they didn't necessarily think there would be a way out. Now, this changes on a dime when it comes to Ukraine. And right. nobody gets the Russian perspective on it, at the very least in the United States, um, even though they fully got it for the Cuban Missile Crisis. For that matter, even if it was Mexico, if it was Mexico that the government was knocked over and they started putting missiles and weapons and mercenaries and all of this other stuff in, it would be the same thing. The United States would not accept the position that Mexico is an independent nation. Mexico can do whatever Mexico wants. And if Mexico wants to point missiles at the United States, then fair enough, Mexico can do that. Nobody believes that the U.S. would take that position. But you had a situation where NATO basically expanded to the borders of Russia for the last, what, 40, 50 years, give or take. Against, um, against agreement, against in violation against, of the agreement. Yes. It, it, yeah, they call it an agreement. But basically, they said when the Soviet Union falls, the U.S. would move or NATO would move one inch to the east. But right. all of them understood that that was a provocation. You're taking a military organization and basically encircling a country that you consider to be an enemy for God knows how long. And anytime you bring that up, it's like, but you guys are encircling them. Well, yeah, but we're just the defensive organization. You are a military organization that is surrounding another country in order to get a fait accompli in case anything pops off, whether real or whether propagated. It's that. And so when Moscow comes out and says, we need to have security conversations, and they're like, nope, Moscow doesn't have security concerns. Putin is just making this up. This is just nonsense. And again, this is a country that's been invaded twice by the West. Where, what, the last time they lost 26 million people or something? I mean, just insane stuff. And so when they bring up the point, look, you guys expanded to our borders. That's true. That's provocation. That's not anybody making that up. When they make the point of saying you didn't fulfill the mince agreements. Again, this is a submissive Ukrainian government that at this point had been overthrown and that Joe Biden was able to basically hold a billion dollars up in order to get them to fire a prosecutor. But we don't believe that if the U.S. or for that matter Europe wanted, that they would have fulfilled the mince agreements. Well, of course they would have. Um, and the fulfilling the mince agreements would mean that Ukraine wouldn't be losing 20, how much ever percent of its territory right now. I mean, even this notion of NATO in the membership. Ukraine is made up of ethnic Russian Ukrainians in the East. Um, and you have Ukrainians in the West. At the point where the government was overthrown in 20, uh, what, 2014, um, under the U.S. government. U.S. overthrow it. I mean, you can even go back and look at the politicians. All of those politicians were chest thumping a legitimately elected Yanukovych government being overthrown 
They applauded it. You have, um, what is it, uh, John McCain on the pages of, I think it's the Washington Post, shaking hands with a Nazi. And then it's like immediately when the government is overthrown and they use these kind of neo-Nazis, these Russophobic um, groups in order to tip of a spear to overthrow the government. This is not even in conjecture at this point. What, Victoria Newland, Jeffrey, I forget the other, his last name, these U.S. representatives are basically talking about it's time to midwife this thing and F the EU and all this other stuff. And then what, if within a few weeks, the government is, goes up in a flash, what makes it wilder is that the media, under normal circumstances, this rules-based order, they were perfectly okay with the Yanukovych government being overthrown. That was a government elected by ethnic Russian Ukrainians in addition to the Ukrainians in the West. They overthrew it. There's an awesome, um, that's an awesome memo by uh, William Burns, current CIA director right now. It's called Nyet Means Nyet. And it's this WikiLeaks doc that basically he makes the point of saying in a paraphrasing, look, the if we keep pushing in that country, especially pushing NATO, we're going to create divisions from the standpoint of the East and the West. The East is completely against it because they're ethnic Russian. Um, of course, they're not going to be on behalf of NATO or for NATO, where the West is perfectly for it. You're going to create a civil war. Russia is going to have to get involved. And then it's not something that Russia has to do. Everybody forgot that memo that came out in 2008, the moment that all of this popped off. It's amazing how they forget it. They immediately said there's no Nazis in Ukraine, despite the fact I can show you 30 articles pointing out that there are neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Um, hell, even Stefan Bandera being put into, what is it, a hero of Ukraine back in 2000, I believe it's eight, when the other color revolution took place. Or well, 2004, it's one of those, I forget it. I think it's, yeah. But I guess my point is, this is one of those things that if any of those countries were held up to, meaning if they were put in the same situation, all of those countries would behave in the exact same way and all of them know it. And the way they deal with it is basically dropping all context to everything that's basically taking place to just say it's Putin's fault, Putin's a bad man, NATO had nothing to do with it, Ukraine was just standing there as love and light. Um, they not, when they knocked over the Ukrainian government, the most rational thing in the world happened. The ethnic Russian Ukrainians in the East, recognizing that a bunch of Nazis have basically taken over the government, decided to pull out of the government, meaning it's the most rational thing in the world. If your government collapses, then legitimately elected government, the one that had some level of legitimacy because they were actually elected, collapsed. And they weren't just collapsed, they were overthrown. And so in the context of that government being overthrown and them realizing what is taking place at this moment, they were not unclear of it, despite the American public being unaware of it. And they decided to basically pull themselves out of that government holding referendums. Now, the rub is the men's agreements would have still kept those dumbass republics under the auspices of the Ukrainian government. That's the rub. So even though they wanted to pull out and everything else, all things been equal, Minsk would have allowed them to remain under the auspices of the Ukrainian government. They would have been almost like this kind of quasi-independent nation, but still, nonetheless, it would have prevented what we are seeing now, which is a complete catastrophe that never needed to happen in the first place. We're speaking with Jamal Thomas of the Progressive Soapbox. You know, we all have our theories as to why this began, but my theory is very simple. There are trillions and trillions of dollars of natural resources in Western Ukraine. We want them. Russia wants them. And I'm sure China wants them. And we're all, you know, playing this game of Stratego, as you like to say. I do. And, and I also point out that, again, I don't care what language my oligarch speaks. Yeah. My oligarchs can speak Russian or Chinese or Arabic. I really don't care. And right. it's fascinating that we're so susceptible to thinking that those are real things. Right. Like 
Russian people, they're just people. They're just like us. We have infinitely more in common with them than we do with the top whatever of this country. So like, I just, I cannot get into that very, um, it's very xenophobic. It's very like oh, nationalistic. Yeah. I replace don't like the, it. Replace the word Russian with anything. Yeah, you know, I just, I, I can't. People would lose their minds. I know. I cannot. And I just feel like, yeah, no, 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 no. We're on the same team with them. It's the people at the top and it shouldn't matter what language they speak. No, that's like, very I, true. I mean, if you spend, what, all of 20, ever since Trump was elected, demonizing Russia, I'm um, talking about they were responsible for it, stealing the election and everything else. Well, maybe the public will have a certain temperament about it, especially Democrats, who basically at this point have just left a reservation and is basically at this point have become the neocons. I mean, even to the to a point yeah. that beyond Republicans, which is super weird. Um, look, the, the rationale behind this, a lot of this, I think, has to do with Nord Stream 2. Um, Nord Stream 2 was going to take billions of transfer fees from the Ukrainian government. That government required those fees in order to keep that government even afloat. And so if you remember, Biden held, in fact, Anthony Blinken wrote the book talking about the oil pipeline wars or something to that effect, meaning that's something that was on their mind. And so when Biden kept threatening Germany, threatening Merkel, threatening the government, um, basically, we're going to pass sanctions on our own friends and everything else, passing sanctions on the companies that were working on the pipeline. Well, they were working on the pipeline because they didn't want to bypass Ukraine. Now, from the U.S. standpoint, our belief was that or our stated objective was to never have another country to rival us in the way that the Soviet Union rivaled us, which means that nothing was supposed to ever come out of the situation where Moscow, meaning at the point where the Soviet Union collapsed, there wasn't supposed to be Russia reorganizing its powers and everything else in this, in this particular sense. No, the issue with Ukraine is not really about Ukraine. It's about geopolitical posturing, per se. Um, if NATO is not able to assert itself and assert its powers, then what does it mean for NATO? Meaning if NATO can't use all of its economic powers, or for that matter, its military might, in order to change the material circumstance of the situation on the ground, then does it really have the power that it believed it had at all? And not just that, what does it mean for the world going forward in regards to this kind of hegemonic order collapsing into a multipolar or dual polar world at this point? Um, I mean, think about it for the moment. Look at the other countries that have basically stood out. I mean, three-fourths of the globe is like, yeah, we're not paying attention. We're not playing this. Yeah. And then you get Turkey, Saudi Arabia. These are basically allies of the United States trying to get into BRICS, um, or for that matter, Belt and Road. Basically, these countries have backed out of this process, realizing that the West has jumped the shark. Um, and all of them, many of them, have had to deal with the West from the standpoint of this kind of uh, intrusion into their countries and intrusion into their um, let's say the democracies or whatever those countries are. And so it's not like they're unaware of the influence of the U.S. in these various countries. I mean, for God's sake, Iraq, um, Syria, the, the attempts at uh, um, Iran. I mean, that's just in the Middle East by itself. I mean, there is a history of the U.S. knocking over various governments, whether it's in South America, the Middle East or otherwise. And so the rest of the world stays out. They don't want to get involved. But whether they want to get involved or not, they're still stuck with either the higher prices. They're still stuck with the issue of not getting food supplies like wheat or something to that effect. I mean, African nations weren't getting the wheat that they were supposed to be getting. Um, and because the prices have gone up so much that many of those nations have a much harder time paying for it, whereas Europe can afford it, weirdly enough, for the time being, um, considering the pound and the euro falling through the floor. No, the, the biggest issue or the saddest thing about this is none of this needed, needed to happen. I mean, at the point where Putin was screaming, what is it, January or February, 
We need a security arrangement. We need to come to a security arrangement. We need to come to a security arrangement. And all of those tre- troops have basically piled up at the border with Russian troops also at the border because there was a belief that they were going to go in and just basically take out those ethnic Russian territories, the Donbass region. Um, none of this needed to happen. Like in a sane, sober world, people would be like, OK, we can come up with a new security arrangement in order for everybody's interests to be understood. That didn't happen. That definitely didn't happen. Why are we seeing in this very moment right now, early voting started today. And why today of all days does Pramila Jayapal and 30 members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus bring forward a resolution to the president saying you need to have a peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine right now? I think there are two reasons. One, I think they know that, well, McCarthy comes out. And McCarthy says, look, we're not going to have a blank check for Ukraine, for one. Um, two, um, when, what is the last Harvard-Harris poll that came out, the number three issues, inflation, economy, and immigration. On the Democrats' list from standpoint of the public, what does Democrats stand for? January 6th, women's health, and it was something else that I don't remember because it wasn't important to the public. <laughs> um, from the standpoint of the Republican Party, economics, inflation, <laughs> and immigration. Republicans it's hit it. economy stupid. Yes, yes. Republicans hit it dead on the head. Now, yeah. I have no belief that they're going to do anything about it in real terms. But the very fact that they're talking about it in and of itself, meaning if you ever heard, if you ever listened to Donald Trump's recent speeches, maybe going back a few months ago, he hits this issue on the head. He hits the Ukraine issue on the head. McCarthy coming out basically saying, look, the Ukraine is not going to get a blank check at the point where Americans are losing or there's expected 2 million jobs being lost, which is what they're expecting, by the way. They're forecasting, despite the fact that Joe Biden is like, oh, inflation is, is going to be a soft landing and we might not have a recession at all. Most people think we're already in a recession. And the majority of economists, everyone that I've seen anyway, believes we're all we're going to hit it, hit it dead on. Keep in mind, Joe Biden is the one who's been saying for the last year, oh, this transient inflation is just transient. It's not transient. And a lot of that stuff is a direct result of the policies that the Biden administration had taken for this kind of geopolitical world order stuff when none of this needed needed to take place. And so, yeah, I think it's a few things. I think they realize that on some level, look, there may be some lefty bona fides clinging to the rims of the corner where they're thinking the president is screaming about Armageddon. Russia is talking about a dirty bomb that Ukraine is going to release. And they contacted all of those various world leaders to kind of make the point saying, look, this is a dramatic escalation. Ukraine is creating a dirty bomb. Meaning you have all of these people talking about nuclear weapons. Um, so there may be this kind of, I don't know, sense of self-preservation where they kind of want to hit this stuff. But I suspect a lot of the stuff had to do with them recognizing that on some level, the public may not be there with them. I mean, you have $31 trillion in debt. And with $31 trillion in debt, you're sending, what, $50 billion to Ukraine and giving them basically a stipend with Zelensky screaming for more weapons every other day that he gets you know, breath in his, in his lungs. I mean, what is the American public to think of that when the Fed keep raising rates? They're paying more, dramatically more, for food or, for that matter, for energy. And it's unclear whether energy cost is even going to go when they pass a stupid price cap idea. It's just going to take the energy through the roof. Um, and they don't even include that in the inflation numbers, meaning however bad you think inflation is, food and energy is not even included because those numbers are so much dramatically higher. So what the people are basically paying is higher than what that number indicates. And so it's like people are dealing with that. And you asked Joe Biden a question, I think this was maybe a month or two ago. Mr. President, Americans are paying so much more for gas prices. How long do you expect them to pay for this? He said, in perpetuity. 
however long they need to pay for it, they can pay for it. All of this is for Ukraine. So in the same way you get this political instability in Europe, um, I think you're going to get it here too. I mean, the only difference is the U.S., all varying reasons, could be a fuel-producing nation if it needs to be. Europe, they were getting 40% of their gas from Europe, I mean, from Russia. They were screwed. They are no magical door for Europe at all. Um, they're going to be freezing in, um, over the winter. But from the standpoint of the U.S., yeah, the Biden, I think on some level, they get that Trump has an inroad on that issue and that argument of inflation, economy, and Ukraine and tethering those things together to one another. And that they have a huge amount of clarity with getting hit over that, um, especially calling themselves lefties, which. Yeah. You know, I think that that we and I somebody had said something in the comment about that. It's been somewhat disheartening that there isn't really this anti-war push on the left at all. Like and we all know why. Like, we all know why that is. It's extremely profitable. And the military industrial complex is one of the biggest funders of the majority of people in our Congress. Um, yeah. Our representative is he heavily funded by Raytheon and Northrop Grumman and whatever thing. Um, so, Lord, Her um, Lord Alston. I mean, <laughs> he was what he came from Raytheon or something. This yeah. is the problem. So, you know, it's just very profitable. And that's just a fact. But there is not enough anti-war. And it's like, for me, I'm already against the next war. And then the one after that and the one after that. And it's all for profit. Every Agreed. single war in history. All for profit. A few exceptions. Very yeah, few agree. exceptions. I mean, look, it, the, people make this point about saying, do I support the war? And the thing is like, hell no, I don't support the war. I, there's, look, I mean, I think something is justifiable or understand how, um, let's say, the, the dominoes fell in a way to get us to a particular position. And realizing that it's not as simple as, well, that guy did it because that guy invaded. It's not that simple. If I'm surrounding you and making you look as if I'm going to attack you, you're not crazy for responding to that. And the fact that this has been NATO policy going back to the last, like, God knows, 50 years, it's like a combination of NATO policy at this point where they thought, all right, this is our best shot. We can use Ukraine as pawns in this or, or basically fight to the last day in Ukrainian. And on top of that, only thing we have to do is spend money. What was a Congress member? I can't think of his name. He made the point of saying we're getting off on the cheap because the only thing we have to do is spend money. They're using their lives. That's the way they're looking at this. It's it's insane. So it's not it's not this kind of rah rah war, but it is recognizing that there is a I don't know I guess a logical batch of steps that went into how these guys are screwing around on the geopolitical front. I mean, look at Taiwan for example. Uh, China, yeah. the one China power. Many times worse than this. I don't think people. Yeah. Know at all what's going on well, with that. I mean, Nancy Pelosi basically goes into somebody else's country. I know. Joe Biden and Pelosi is basically blowing off U.S. policy, like hardcore U.S. Yeah. policy, where Biden administration comes out and says, well, we will militarily defend Taiwan, says it three or four times where the people have to basically walk it back. The policy of, of Taiwan mm -hmm. hasn't changed. Do you honestly believe that Xi Jinping thinks that the policy on Taiwan hasn't changed? And that part of the reason for them is basically saying we're going to beef up our military, we're going to bring these guys in closer. If they would have never did anything to Taiwan, it's very likely that Taiwan would have persisted without being touched or molested by China at all. Yeah. Well, I always say it's sort of like the little annoying brother that sits there like this. And then as soon as the older brother does something, then that's who gets in trouble. Like that's us with everyone. And I yeah. don't understand how this is not more like this is what I'm trying to get people to understand. Like, why are we threatened by Russia anyway? This is what I don't understand. Are they coming up on the shores with like like weapons? Are they bombing us from overhead? Like, 
What is it that you think the Russians, we have over 800 military bases in the world. I think Russia has what, like eight? That many, nowhere near 800. I'll tell you that. Like, no, it's so ridiculous. It's, it's so ridiculous. They only spend what, $50 billion or $6 billion for their military each year? Yeah. But what Russia does have is a unbelievable supply of oil. Yes. And Putin is willing to sell it on the cheap to Europe to basically screw our economy because our economy is completely captured by big oil. And we have not in any way, shape or form moved to a clean energy grid at the pace that we've needed to for well over a decade. And this is the result of policies from Obama, from George W. Bush, probably even from Clinton. This is going back many, many years. And yeah. when the, the conservatives say we need to stop getting oil from the Middle East. I agree 100 percent. The answer is not to drill on, let's say, Native American land here in the United States. It's like there's there's this complete disconnect when. Uh, and again, I watched the debate between Governor DeSantis and Charlie Chris tonight. Yeah. And the biggest. Oh, most how was it? I didn't see it. It, well, DeSantis won. I'm going to give him that. No, but it was, it was, you know, it was debate. It, it's not changing the result of the election. Let's put it that yeah. way. But the statement that DeSantis made that was the most egregious by either side was him saying that America was not founded on stolen land. This is stolen land. Like, come Whoa. on. Whoa. Wow. Like, dude, come on. We're talking Spanish Florida, for God's sake. Like, he's just... I understand what he's doing, and I understand that people's feelings are all caught up in the real history of the United States. It's like not being able to talk about the real history of Christopher Columbus. So we unfortunately have people like mythology. They do. They do. They like this mythology of God, guns and country because that is what it is. It's this mythological uh, thought of the United States as this benevolent, perfect nation that doesn't do anything wrong. What I do find and and what I do find very, very interesting, and I'm sure you may have observed this with the responses that came in when the Congressional Progressive Caucus put out the statement that the president should be negotiating with Putin and Zelensky to end this thing. The overwhelming response from the comfortable big city suburban liberals is don't you even dare think about doing something like that. Of course, of course, of course. They're going to say that. I mean, keep in mind, from the standpoint of media, they have been in lockstep. They have eliminated all context. They've dropped all honest conversation about the issue. Um, They don't allow two sides of the issue to come out. And so they've waited until, what, eight months in to finally come out and say, hey, maybe we should think about negotiating peace terms. Look, I tell you this, the media is not on board for that. Um, the political space is not necessarily on board for that. Europe is not on board for that, especially with the damage their economies are basically taking at this point. What was it all for? I mean, uh, I would imagine some of them are thinking. I mean, many of those countries don't want, I mean, the, the repress, even in this country, admittedly, many of those countries in Europe would prefer the war not to end if indeed it ends as a positive for Russia. I mean, their belief is if NATO loses, NATO loses. This whole hegemony thing pretty much goes out the way. And so they're not looking at this from that standpoint. From their standpoint, Ukraine is taking a hit on some level for them. And so the politicians in the United States, they're not going to be on board for it. I mean, they waited for all of this time to say, hey, maybe we should come out with some kind of peace deal. I mean, when Boris Johnson jumped in, when Zelensky, Erdogan was basically trying to broker a peace deal. Um, And look, he's been grandstanding like nobody's business recently, but fair enough, whatever. He was trying to broker a real peace deal. Bush Johnson jumps into the country, failed prime minister Bush Johnson, 
jumps into the country and basically says, cut it out. You're not going to get any security guarantees from us if you come up with some kind of deal in this process. In which case, Zelensky called it off because, again, if he's not going to get security guarantees, then he can't necessarily have a peace deal, right? And so they have been pushing him, like, into the stuff. It's Alexander McCarris likes to make the point of saying they led him down the garden path. Because they basically made it as if you're going to be part of NATO, you're going to be part of NATO. But when it came down to it, they weren't willing to fire a shot. And all things been equal, they were basically putting in, we'll give you all the equipment that you want. We'll give you all the money that you want. Go handle that for us and drag the Russians into this old Afghanistan. If you remember, we've done this before. Um, what is it? Mika Brzezinski. Brzezinski. Her, her dad. <laughs> a, a global. I, I always remember him by remembering her. Um, her dad was a geopolitical strategist. And one of his plans was to get Russia bogged down into this own Vietnam War in Afghanistan. Now, from the standpoint of the public, it just looks like Russia just went into Afghanistan for no reason. Behind the scenes, um, uh, what is his name? Chalmers Johnson, his book, um, Blowback. He makes a point about the U.S. was screwing around in Afghanistan, in which case Russia or Soviet Union intervenes. I guess the point I'm making here is in one case after the next, there's provocation. And that provocation is often done in order to undercut people who we consider to be enemies. The, the question that you ask, why Russia? Part of it has to do with because Russia is not under control of the, by the United States. I mean, if you look at the vassal states of Europe, we don't have peer nations. We don't believe in peer nations. It's either you follow our directions or not. And if you don't, you get sanctioned. You might have a coup. You might have something that unfortunately happens to your country that puts pressure on that particular country. Um, and that seems to be modest operandi. So whether it's China, Russia, Iran, et cetera, Saudi Arabia is going to get the boot at some point. Um, and even Turkey, if it keeps up what it's been doing um, in regards to being so, let's say, jovially into the Russian camp recently, um, they're going to do. I mean, look at how we threatened India when India was like, yeah, no, I am going to take a deal that is in my best interest and I'm going to get that Russian oil and gas that you guys decided you didn't want to get. Yeah. So, yeah, we're going to take it. And it is kind of amazing when you think about it, because we just did a deconstructing Zionism uh, live stream. You know, the current state of Israel regarding their Palestinian policy is no, it's our generation, South Africa. And yes. what is transpiring now in Ukraine is the next generation's war in Iraq. Like, People need to be able It's to like Groundhog Day. And, and, and what is so amazing is how easily manipulated the average American is. Like, they still don't understand that the biggest reason why Ukraine is caught in the middle of this right now is because there are trillions and trillions of dollars of rich natural resources in the western part of that country. And the three global superpowers, America, Russia, and China, believe that they're entitled to it. And the average American still doesn't seem to be able to wrap their head around this idea that corporate media works on behalf of these multinational corporations to create a narrative that is as far from the truth about what's really going on as is humanly possible. If you're taking your cues from what MSNBC, CNN, or Fox News is telling you, pretty much believe the opposite in most circumstances. Uh, that's how I see it. That's fair, but I wouldn't necessarily use purely a capitalistic lens to see this. I mean, there's this kind of dovetail between capitalism and geopolitics that is kind of this hand in glove. Um, in the way that it's kind of interacting. Like, there is, it's kind of like the Brits, this kind of high idea of themselves, despite the fact that the government is basically collapsing right now. Still, the sun never sets on the British Empire. They used to own 51% of the globe. Look at where they are now. But the public still has a, a sense of themselves. I think the US is the same way. When the Soviet Union collapsed, you had this idea that we won. We won. 
We don't have to, you know, listen to anybody else. We're the superpower. We're the hedge of mind. Everybody else just fall in line. And so when you get a situation like Iraq, where the U.S. goes in, nobody can do anything about it. When you decide to go after Iran, you can isolate them. Nobody comes to their aid or their rescue. And you can pull this off for a while. But after a while, you get these other rising economies. You get the BRIC nations. You get China and what raising, what, two, 200 million people out of poverty in the course of 20 years. Um, Russia begins to organize its strength and pull its strength back. And you get this organization between China and Russia that for the longest time, U.S. policy was to keep those two separate. For the, I mean, that, that was U.S. policy, the belief that if these two are together, this becomes a rival that we will have a difficult time dealing with. We keep them separate. Well, these guys are so incompetent and so full of hubris that this kind of realistic vision of the world and the things that you have to countries that you work with, whether you like it or not, that's out the window. And instead, you get Biden preaching to Saudi Arabia, not fully grasping the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and how it's as if we believe that we can do whatever we want and every other country is supposed to just acquiesce to it. So when Europe decides to bend over and get their countries obliterated from a domestic sense, we go to Saudi Arabia and say, we need you to do this now just until the midterms because, you know, I want to get elected. And they say, no, he flips out, threatens Saudi Arabia. And it's like, Saudi Arabia did something that was in their best interest. It wasn't even just Saudi Arabia. It's OPEC plus. OPEC is a ton of, it's multiple nations. I think it's like 20 something nations, not just Saudi Arabia. But he flips out. He gets angry at Saudi Arabia for taking something that's in their best interest. Same thing with Turkey or Turkey. When they do something that is in their best interest, the U.S. flips out. Same thing with India. India decides to take the oil. Why wouldn't they take that oil and gas? I mean, at the exact same time where Europe has decided to basically kick itself in the teeth and basically slit its own wrist for the foreseeable future. Well, India, China, many of the rising economies said we will take that oil and gas at a great price if Europe isn't going to take it. So some of the stuff is self-inflicted. I guess my thing is some this I don't think this is purely just a capitalistic issue. Like it's not just a resource based issue. Some of this has to do with we need a, a country on the border of Russia in order to antagonize Russia. And if we can drag them into a conflict, it weakens this idea of China and Russia alliance between each other, meaning if Russia loses us, what it means for China going forward. Um, but also if you can drag Russia into something on some level, it weakens Russia's ability in order to be um, a coordination with China. Not to mention you create the situation where you could continuously poke at that country and potentially with the idea of overthrowing that country, which is the basic idea um, that these guys have for the longest time. They wanted to slice the country up um, in segments. Um, I, I, I agree with you from the capitalistic argument, definitely. But there's an element of geopolitical grandstanding here where these guys are basically trying to have geopolitical control over the globe that can't be understated. Yeah, I mean, we do that everywhere. And any country that isn't on board with us, and I think, you know, does it all come down to the petrodollar? I don't know. I mean, we certainly have problems with places like Venezuela and all of right. a sudden. Yeah, but we're so concerned for their people. I'm sure we're so concerned for their people. And it's all about that they just don't want to play ball with us. Yes. And every country that doesn't want to play ball with us, all of a sudden, that's the enemy. And it's just yeah. so blatant. It's just so ridiculous to me at this point. And it's no different. With it. It's like we have to be in control of everything. And any country that dares to do it their own way or dares to want to offer its own citizens the resources of its country, uh, we can't have that. Yeah, we don't tolerate that. We don't tolerate that at all. I yeah. mean, it's super weird that the public hasn't noticed that yet. 
that it just so happened that countries like China, Russia, Iran, et cetera, all those countries are always attacking us. And, oh, we hate them so much. And we're just standing here. Those countries are just, you know, angry at us for no reason. It's like, like, it makes no sense. Like the, like the, the thing where they say Russia bombed its own pipeline. They say that with a straight face. They say that with a straight face. And it's like, why would they do that? Why would they need to do that? They just want to point the finger at Ukraine. They spent all of those billions of dollars in time building the pipeline, but they're going to blow it up. Okay, sure. I mean, it's almost as if at this point, they don't even seem to have, um, they don't even put in time to think about it. Like, it's just, yeah, 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 just let the media, you know, put that out there. Um, and we're just run with it from that. It's insane. It's super bizarre. But it doesn't seem like the public is caught in on it yet. And maybe, maybe it's just, you know, this the Cold War, that that thing is still steeped in the nation, even if it's not necessarily immediately on the surface at any particular point in time. Um, maybe it's just mainstream media, despite losing credibility, still has credibility on issues of foreign policy, especially if you dislike where it's coming from, or the public doesn't want to, you know, go against the grain in a way to talk about it. I'm not well, sure. there's no way to get the information. See, that's that's the other thing. Like, remember, there used to be a time when there were journalists that worked for networks that actually did foreign correspondence and actually went to those places. And that stopped a long time ago. And so now all we get are talking points from the State Department. And there's really no funded, well-funded uh, for the state. And so what we get are small little independent people here and there. But if you don't know to look for that, like if yeah. your average person doesn't know, oh, I could go look up so-and-so, they'll probably talk to someone who's on the ground or has some, people don't know to do that. And it's been a transition. There used to be like even the generation of Dan Rather and mm-hmm. Tom Brokaw, those were people that had been on the ground and had done foreign correspondence. Most people haven't noticed the change. It, no. it was gradual enough that now all of a sudden you watch CNN and all they're doing is reading the state house briefing. Yeah, which is super weird when you think about it. I mean, like I always say that media has a philosophical responsibility to be contextually honest, meaning you have a president that's basically screaming Armageddon right now. You have another world leader who's that, that president is in a proxy war with another nuclear power. And the nuclear power is basically saying that the country it's at war in is talking about a dirty bomb. Now, this is a massive escalation. And if you remember, the U.S. has been creating this framework, kind of like weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Basically, if a bomb is, you know, if Russia does this, we may intervene. So wait, you're, the team that you're backing that has been attacking a nuclear power plant look as, looking as if they were trying to create a nuclear incident and that are basically now being accused of trying to release a dirty bomb. You will immediately turn around and say Russia was responsible for it, just like you said Russia was responsible for bombing their own pipelines or bombing their own prison camp or bombing their own facility that they had access to with the troops at there. Meaning you blame them for everything, which wouldn't shock me if you blame them for that. And you're using this nuclear talk to create a pretext in which you, Poland and maybe some of the Baltic country or whatever can basically invade Western Ukraine, especially if it looks as if Ukraine is going to go up entirely. Um, so it's like the pretext thing is, is very disturbing to, to put it mildly. But to your point, yeah, this is this is standard policy on some level. And it's unfortunate. I mean, I guess my thing is from the standpoint of media, they have a responsibility to be honest. And instead, they consider that their patriotic duty is to basically talk or push the U.S. line on it, as opposed to basically give a contextual understanding of what happened um, from my standpoint. That is the opposite of their patriotic duty. If your president is screaming Armageddon, then it behooves you to figure out why 
And what's the reality of it, especially when 52% of the public believe that Joe Biden is responsible for it, or at the very least is making it worse. They don't do that. From, their, from my standpoint, my job is very straightforward. Try to be honest, be as honest as possible, and try to give a framing of it and try to be able to make the argument in order to support whatever you're saying. That way the public can make a choice one way or the other, whether you're BSing them or not. Um, not always. It depends on how much they know. But I do try to be honest and give context to whatever I'm talking about, which is why my videos run so, so long sometimes. Um, it is kind of amazing how Jen convinced me to watch the movie uh, Wag the Dog. Oh, I love that. So, so much. Oh, it, I love that. I mean, that the movie. whole thing with, with, with Woody Harrelson's character oh. and how it's so relevant to what's going on right now and, and the way that. Okay. It, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it, and please address him as President Blinken, because we all know Tony Blinken is the president of the United States. Let's just keep it real. Uh, the one calling the shots. And, you know, right now, people do have a reason to be afraid. You know, Putin is a madman in many ways. And he's a rational actor. Well, he's well, he's rational from this perspective. I think anyone with an objective eye can see that we, if we didn't outright blow up Nord Stream 2, we had a hand in it 100%. Yes. And that is justification for World War III. He had every reason to take this thing to the next level, which is basically potential Armageddon. Nobody wants to have a third World War. Oh, yeah, like, absolutely. I mean, this is, look, brinksmanship becomes part of politics, right? It's like, how far are you willing to go? And do you think the other person is going to go that far with you? Um yeah, I don't think anybody wants a third world war. They may push it. They may push it to a level where they think, okay, there's no way the other person is going to escalate in this particular situation over this particular item. Those people can be wrong in that assessment. Meaning what you assess as your opponent may do could be completely wrong. Your component could take that stuff and run with it, thinking that this is a massive escalation to your point, that maybe this is worth a third world war. I don't think that was worth the third world war. I don't think much of anything is worth a third world war, depending upon the situation, I guess. I mean, the idea, that the, the idea that the conversation is even being floated, yes. eh, maybe we'll use dirty bomb, eh, maybe we'll use a nuke. And all I'm thinking is this could have ended within weeks. But no, there's two reasons. One, the Ukrainian people are pawns and they're just stuck in the middle of this. Agreed. And then the other side is once the military industrial complex gets their hooks into something like uh, this, there's no going back. There's too much money. There's too much power. And it's amazing how easy it is to buy off people in this entire scheme. Some yeah. people require a lot of money. Some don't require much. But as we've seen in the political sphere, you know, somebody like Nina Turner, unfortunately, gets sideswiped by APAC for the tune of five or six million dollars. Summer mm -hmm. Lee nearly got knocked off by a no name in Pittsburgh when they put the same amount of money behind. And if Jen were to run again against Debbie Wasserman Schultz in 2024, they'll do the exact same thing. And what I think a lot of people don't understand is corporate special interests run not just our country, but run the world. So when we talk about what are we going to do to actually solve this problem, the fact that we live in a country without health care, without a living wage, without a clean energy grid that we desperately need, and maybe the single greatest thing we could be pushing for right now if we want to end these senseless wars, because again, 
Right now, we don't have a clean energy grid that runs the United States that could be basically a beacon for the rest of the world. You've got Europe that is, as you said, completely screwed right now because winter's approaching and Putin is the direct line to getting their heat on in the wintertime. And he will hold that over their heads in order to end this conflict on his terms. Putin has said over and over again that even like a week or two ago, if you need gas, turn the pipe back on. That's then Nord Stream 2 got blown up. The issue here is not Putin giving the gas or the oil. He's willing to give the gas and the oil. The issue is the U.S. doesn't want that. I mean, for God's sake, they were the U.S. was trying to sanction those pipelines. The U.S. most likely blew up that pipeline in order to prevent Europe from ever going back in the sense of um, if they ever change their mind and decide they want to get the gas. It was Europe that decided they wanted this economic war. That wasn't Russia. Yeah. No, it, there's no question. And again, I and again, I will say the one thing I, I will give Putin credit for, and I can't give him much, very, very little. Again, he's <laughs> right. And he is, you know, again, he's very tyrannical, but he did have the opportunity to take this thing to the next level in a way that could have had beyond disastrous repercussions. Oh, I don't know. Stream 2 pipeline was blown up. That hasn't happened, uh, but that doesn't mean that it can't change. And so I am somewhat optimistic that at least you do have a certain number currently of progressives, Democrats, that are willing to come out and say, we got to stop this. Well, let's see the GOP join hands. OK, if you're so if you're so damn concerned and think that what's going on there is such a waste, then, you know, make it so. But when the military industrial complex, corporate special interests have their hooks in something, you know, it's very difficult to pull back. So how do you see this ending? If it's going to end anytime soon, God willing, it will. But how do you see that unfold? Um, so that's the question I always ask. How does it end? Because, um, look, all things been equal. Like I said, this was even William Burns accepts that this was something that didn't need to take place and that the West kept pushing, kept poking, despite knowing full well that this stuff was a red line. Um from standpoint of energy, yeah, Europe is screwed. They're not going to get energy back in anytime soon. And I don't believe that even if the war ended tomorrow, that that situation would change with Europe. Europe is, well, the point where they blew up um, pipes, uh, Nord Stream 2, well, or Nord Stream 1 and partial Nord Stream 2, well, that pretty much is over with. Um, from the standpoint of the war, well, Russia's basically thrown down the gauntlet on how they're going to end the war. Their thing is, we are going, these uh, um, regions have been absorbed, uh, Donetsk, Lugansk. Zaporozhia and Kherson, and that from this point on, any attack that's taking place on that territory is basically taking place on Russia itself. So that now allows their military to get involved in a way where, I mean, up to this point, it was an expeditionary force that was fighting with the Dumbass republics. It wasn't the entirety of the Russian military. In fact, they went in really soft. Putin was criticized for going in too soft in the conflict. And so you get this thing now where Ukraine is going bankrupt, they're basically saying we don't have money to keep going and they're begging for more cash. Uh, but they're talking about their energy grid basically being torched at this point. I mean, that was the way they were moving troops from point A to point B. Um, there wasn't something Russia attacked at first, but they started to escalate the moment they started to attack the Kerch Bridge and these other areas of Crimea. Um, the catch, I mean, the honest question really is how far does the West go? It's that. I mean, Putin has basically said, this is how we end the war. We're going to basically make this territory part of Russia. We're going to protect it as if we're protecting our own domestic territory. The question is, how far does the West go? 
Are they going to continue to escalate? Are they going to allow Ukraine to basically lose? If they don't allow Ukraine to lose, well, Russia considers this existential. That's why Putin got 80% approval. It's not because he's a madman. It's because they realize that the U.S. may have a framing of all of this stuff, but at the end of the day, for them, it's existential. It's you're surrounding a country with the idea of creating a provocation on our border at this point and now in an actual conflict, an actual war. No, I, I have no idea what Washington does with this. Um, they could keep pushing it. They could be pushing weapons and munitions and materials and money and everything else just to keep it going for as long as they possibly can, which I do believe they would do. But how it ends, oh, I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, look, I would say that if the U.S. or let's say some of the other countries are not going to get involved in a larger way, in a way that could take this to the level of a nuclear conflict. Because, look, the only thing that Putin said in his speech was something that the U.S. says all the time. All options are on the table if indeed you're coming into our country. I have no idea how the nuclear talk started. You basically had an um, expeditionary force working with dumbass militias that was able to take 20% of the territory. The United States comes out and says, Russia is talking about nuclear weapons. Who the hell is talking about nuclear weapons in a situation where you're able to do that with an expeditionary force? Meaning it doesn't even make sense on the space to go to nuclear weapons in that situation. That was something that these guys were set as a framing that I think you might have jumped onto. But from the standpoint of how it ends, I have no idea. I mean, this is going to be something that is going to be a decision for the West and NATO countries on how far they're willing to escalate. Putin is not willing to lose this, can't afford to lose this, because, again, this is at his borders at this point. The question yeah. is NATO. Questions yeah, NATO? I feel like we're getting like people in the chat thinking that we're somehow like propping up Putin. And I, I just I want to be very clear. I and I. I could do this like a green eggs and ham. I do not like imperialism here. I do not like imperialism there. I do not like it anywhere. So no, I'm not a fan of people invading countries for any reason. That's just not my thing. And I don't support it and I don't think it's okay, but I also don't think it's our place to have provoke it, get involved in it, and then use it as a political tool to somehow, you know, make the rich richer. Is that That's how I see it. So, yeah. and we're certainly not helping the Ukrainian people. If somebody said, oh, we're really helping Ukrainian people and they really need it. Okay, fine. I, I, I Maybe I could get behind aid. I, I could get behind some some helping them. That's not what this is doing, no. though. So uh -oh. that's the problem. So no, I am not a fan of Putin. I'm not a fan of people invading countries and going into sovereign nations and, and blowing things up. Not my bag. But um, I just don't think it's our place to have been involved and stay involved. No, we shouldn't have been involved in it in the first place. Exactly. I mean, like, none of this needed to take place. I think that's the, the most tragic thing. 100,000 Ukrainians are dead um, over a nonsense conflict that never needed to take place. And these guys are still putting in weapons and money and everything else. This war stops the moment that they stop putting money into the country. I mean, so this is nothing. Look, people can have whatever take they want on Putin. Um, to me, it doesn't really matter that much. All things been equal is, is what is the larger context for how this started? And is the context for how this started one-sided? Meaning, is it really just a Russia is a bad guy in, this, in its entirety and every, on the West is just love and light? That is that, that, nonsense, nonsense. Now, I care about more about the contextual point of view on how this basically started and preventing stuff like this from happening again. But I gotta be honest, it's not gonna be prevented again. The same thing is probably gonna happen with Taiwan um, pretty soon with China. And then you're gonna get all these people coming out again, blaming China but something when the provocation was clear and apparent um, on his face. So, 
Yeah. We really, really appreciate you coming on this evening. If there's anything you want to plug before you go, obviously, this is a very important topic that we must continue to discuss because lives are at stake. And it may not be, you know, American lives per se, but it's innocent people's lives that are caught in the middle of this that don't, do not, and should not be in the middle of it. And that's geo uh, global politics uh, in a nutshell. Tomorrow, yeah. does Vladimir Putin sign your paycheck? <laughs> I don't know if he personally signs my paycheck. No. Technically, we work for an American company here in the States. That's what I thought. Oh, oh it's just so interesting. Again, it doesn't matter what language the oligarchs speak. It's not ours. Okay. Thank no. you. <laughs> it is not. Please, um, please, oh. share what you're, please share what you're yes. working on. Anything you want to plug before you go, we really sure. appreciate Of course, my channel, Jamal Thomas, um, is on YouTube. It's under that name because when I started the channel, I didn't have a YouTube channel. It was just random, you know, whatever. Um, so all my videos basically go on Jamal Thomas. Also, Radio Sputnik. That's my fault lines with the flagship show on the network. Um, and that's pretty much it at this point. Oh. Awesome, guys. Always check out Jamal's stuff. And he, you really do a great job in dealing with the foreign policy and the intersection, I think, of what we see domestically and foreign policy. And really try to make it connected in a way that I think makes common sense. So I very much appreciate that. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I tried to look, I tried to give my argument and let the people basically decide one way or another for the argument. So I appreciate it. Appreciate you, my friend. Thanks for coming Thanks on. Thanks tomorrow. Oh, and apologies for the last step. I, okay. I, I, okay. I feel for you, man. I feel for you. <laughs> okay. Have a good one, guys. Talk Bye to tomorrow. you soon, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I don't know what is going on in this chat today, but <laughs> This is like. <laughs> anyway, guys, I, we're not Putin apologists. I'm not anybody apologist. I'm, against, I'm against all of it. It's, and it's <laughs> always interesting how, well, you know, maybe it's not interesting how the only person who thinks that Debbie should stay is somebody who actually lives in the district. Uh, I don't think anybody said Debbie should stay. They just think she's not going anywhere. Yeah, a lot of people feel that way. Yeah, but again, the Democratic she's definitely Party, clinging on with like her grasp. You want to do that again? Do no. you want to do that again? No. It's voodoo. Just don't kick your big man hooves around. Yeah, sorry about that. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, again, uh, whether or not there's, uh, you know, legitimacy to the argument, uh, you know, we know that war is hell and pointless and, you know, we got to find a way out of it. That's really what it comes no, to. No, it's, it's not pointless. It's very, very lucrative. Yeah, well, of course. For the people that get to decide whether or not we go to war. It's, it's pointless for us, other than it's also like our jobs program. You know, we have like the federal, that's our federal jobs program is basically the military. So... That's what we have. What else did you want to talk about? Do we have somebody else coming on? We are supposed to have Wayne Clark coming on. Okay, good. See him in a minute. Barbara, here's the bottom line. Um, the attitude of that Debbie's not going anywhere is an attitude of nothing is possible and why even try? We prefer to be optimistic that the yes. more eyes we open to corruption and filth and present an opportunity for people maybe to choose something different. And in all reality, if you knew the statistics and you knew how this district worked and you knew what her what she's done, you wouldn't be that impressed in terms of electorally. Like the fact that a total unnamed person just ran against her in a primary and got 10% of the vote without even a campaign, 
that wouldn't happen against any other. Like, that's just not something that would happen. I mean, maybe somebody would get 3%, like how much, like, you know, it's like, but he got 10% of the vote without doing anything against us, an incumbent. That says something to us Like you're, you know, so you again, don't you need an infrastructure understand. for sure. And again, the Democratic Party can't get out of its own way in the state. And a lot of it has to do with that. And so <laughs> the the whole idea. Well, again, uh, it's not a question of proving you wrong. Nothing's been decided yet. But let's That's say that. but let's say if Jen were to run again. You know, the goal here isn't to say, well, it can't happen. The goal is to say, how can you help us do it? What, what can I do to help? Yeah. You know, because the thing about about what we're about is it's not about me or a congressional seat. We're about changing the narrative of politics to one of service and also broadening a coalition of people that believe in, you know, basically community service and wanting to help each other and wanting to do it. So we're about being a proponent of that. And any campaign that we run is going to put that first and foremost. So that's just what we're about. And and I really think that when enough people are presented with an option to corruption and filth, that most people would take it. And I would also point out, and especially we've been doing a lot of canvassing in nonpartisan races lately. We've done canvassing for mayor of Plantation and for school board for Rod Velez. And the thing that is very consistent amongst Republicans and independents who, by the way, can't vote in our closed primary is they're sick and tired of the corruption, too. And when people really are, you know, given the information and they see what what's really going on, that's what disgusts them the most. And if there's anything about Debbie that is really the red flag, it's the corruption in the filth. And it's just it's overwhelming at this point. The insider trading, the just all of it. It's just it's despicable and it's brazen and it, it's just crazy to me. And so when you say that she's not going anywhere, I'd say that's somewhat defeatist, because if we're going to think like that, none of us is going anywhere. Why even Trump? We're going nowhere fast. We're why, all circling why even the drain. Why even Trump? And, just, and, let, yeah. just let Armageddon happen. Yeah. Just let it happen. So, you know, when we talk about her, she is one part of the bigger problem of corruption. Um, she just happens to be the head of the snake in Florida. Which is a big problem. Which and is now, problem. because she's been the head of the snake in Florida for so long, she basically has allowed the ascension of our current governor, who is very likely heading to the White House in 2024. And take with that what you want. But that is uh, that is a big part of it. Metalopoly, I agree with you. Um, and that's why when I say I don't like the term progressive anymore. And when I say that I'm left, I say the actual left, not the political left, like if, the actual left. And yes, the actual left is anti-war. We are anti-war. Um, and yeah, I agree. That we're not seeing enough of an anti-war push from the so-called progressives. And yes, that does seem very convenient to me that on the first day of early voting is when they're drawing attention to that they're taking a stand on uh, Ukraine. Well, again, it's obviously a political calculation, but we're going to learn very much about what's going on at the polls already because we have a good friend that we are bringing on to the show. He's been here once before, ran previously to be the sheriff of Broward County. In my opinion, should have been the sheriff. Unfortunately, that's not how politics works. Uh, with that said, he is now running for Plantation City Council, and it is an at-large seat. All the plantation seats are at large. Right. And so without further ado, Wayne Clark, welcome back to Generational Change, if you're there. 
Are you there? You're also muted. I don't know if he's there. He was there before. He was. He was. Well, we'll see if he comes on in a second. Barbara says she likes me, but she does. She questions my judgment on some things. Well, that's okay. I question most people's judgment on most things. So I figure if you're only questioning my judgment on some things, that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, it, well, and again, TM is right. I mean, again, it does pay to be independent if you can be, but in the state of Florida, that's not an option. Well, and, and that's the an thing. Impact. Yeah. Like if you, if you're, and that is a problem, most people don't even realize that we canvas and talk to so many people all the time and they don't understand. They ask people that ask me, well, why is Debbie still sitting there? We don't vote for her. We don't like her. And I'm like, well, it's this thing called closed primaries. And unfortunately, even people that live in it don't know it. And institutionalization is also a big problem. Yeah. But- as Jenna's pointed out, and, and Barbara, if you're still here, this is very important to remember. You know, Debbie has thrown her weight behind a number of candidates in the past two election cycles, and they've been losing. Her track record is bad right now. And so that probably wouldn't have been the case 10 years ago. It's like Don Shula of politics. But eventually... In the case of Debbie, who's been a congresswoman for two decades and in elected office in Florida for three decades, if you ask me, that's not good on its face, even regardless if the representative is good or not. But most representatives have been around for a very long time, tend to become a little too comfortable in their positions. Then you have to look at what is the person in that particular position doing that may ultimately be hurting the chances of let's say, the side that's trying to enact the right kind of change that is necessary, but is constantly being shot back down because that person who is leading the charge, it really does make a difference who is leading the charge. So what I would say to you, Barbara, and what I would say to anybody else who, let's say, is a lifelong Democrat, has been living down here for a long time, is used to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, but is thinking about, well, why would we want somebody else? There's going to be a very important election, extremely important election in 2024. Uh, Rick Scott's seat is going to be up. And what is going to be very important is who is going to be able to go around the state and campaign with the Democratic nominee. I'm going to say most likely that that person will very likely be Val Demings. She's very likely not going to be Marco Rubio. But having run a statewide race. Yes, this is what we do in our spare time is postulate this shit. Putting yourself in a much better position to run in two years, which in this case would be a very short break if you're going to run for the U.S. Senate again, that's probably going to take place within a year at most. And so if you're thinking about, well, what could we possibly do to move the needle in the direction that's going to give us the best possible shot at knocking Rick Scott out of the Senate? Do you think having somebody like Debbie Wasserman Schultz campaigning around the state for Val Demings is going to move the needle? Or would somebody like a Jen Perlman? Well, Debbie wouldn't. But Debbie also probably wouldn't campaign around the state. She would do things here like she would host things local. But I would I would argue that if you needed somebody to be like a real cheerleader for the Democratic Party and really rally voters and get out young people and motivate people that haven't previously been involved in politics before and go to places like Florabama and be able to get along with all different kinds of people, she might not be your girl. That's yeah. that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying that you might want somebody a little bit more likable personable, um, able to get along with different kinds of people in different rural areas and different, you know, and I, I just don't get that vibe from her. 
I don't see her as a really good representative to get out the vote for the Dems. She's not a selling point. Yeah. Is that a fair assessment? I think it's a very fair assessment. And <laughs> oh, we Wade's are here. Now, Wade's here twice. But get we, rid of that Wayne. Get I, rid of the get okay, rid of the dark this, Wayne. No, get, dismiss the I think dark. We all know that all, every we always say politics is local. And where we find that the most successful connections we make with people politically speaking are when we can talk about nonpartisan races. Why? Because then it isn't about red and blue, it's about policy and the candidate. And that's what it's all about. So without further ado, we are pleased to welcome back friend of the show, was candidate for Broward County Sheriff, now candidate for Plantation City Council, both nonpartisan seats. Wayne Clark, welcome back to Generational Change. Hi, Peter. Hi, Jen. How are you guys doing? Hi, good. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm using my iPhone because apparently I run VDI for work through my uh, desktop. And for some reason, it's not compatible. I don't know. I was on for a couple of seconds and then it disconnected. So, uh, no, it's all good. It's all good. This is fine. So what what prompted you to get into this uh, council race? Um, I know that like we had talked before when you were running for sheriff about like how and and you really kind of opened my eyes to law enforcement is only one small part of that job. But um, what what made you decide to go for the city council race? So, you know, kind of something similar to when I jumped into the sheriff's race, right? Uh, I'm a big advocate for our youth. Uh, I think the youth of today is the future of tomorrow. I say that a million times. Uh, I'm the little league commissioner here in Plantation. I'm on the Plantation Athletic League board. I'm a board of director on there, commissioner on there. Uh, And so I saw, you know, with, with the schools here, our youth here, um, overdevelopment is just uh, one of the hottest topics here in plantation, um, you know, ingress and egress regarding traffic. So I saw it was an open seat. Uh, Nick Sortle resigned to run for mayor against Lynn Stoner. And, you know, it was an opportunity for me to get involved. Um, I've always loved giving back to our community. You know, I'm a United States Army veteran. So um, I've been I served this country starting when I was 17 and 48 now. So, I, you know, I like giving back. Um, I've been very fortunate and blessed in my life. So if I can help the community, that's what I want to do. Yeah, I mean, and I think that the most important thing as far as local politics, it's that it's people that are involved locally. <laughs> like That's yeah. the key thing. And that's what makes it work. And that's the reason that we are supporting Nick for mayor. And we've been out and we've done some canvassing for him because he, like you, He's a guy who lives here and just wants to make it a better place. Like it's it's very it's very community and local oriented and isn't funded by developers. That's true. I'd say that that makes it. It is a big difference, and I, I I'm happy to say that I've already voted for you. Oh, awesome! Thank you. I did, and you get two votes in my house because I do my husband's ballot too. I, I love it. You know, my wife my, my wife and I are going to vote in person, but she already told me she was like, I would vote. In your on your behalf, you just need to sign it if we did melons. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna vote in per in person only because I'm I'm at early voting every day for the next well now 13 days from seven to seven. You guys remember how that is, you know? Yeah, so well, we're, I think we'll come out tomorrow. I think we'll come out tomorrow and hang out. Maybe I'll bring treats and and you know I kind of he likes to schmoozy the polls. He likes <laughs> well, I the polls. well, I haven't voted yet, and. Uh... He I don't hasn't know voted if I, yet. Who I'm going to vote for? So not 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 totally decided as of yet. I yeah. Oh, I'm very resolved. <laughs> I'm well, very this, resolved. this year, um, it's interesting because they have moved 
everything back so far and and it's like you there 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 really is very very minimal voter engagement um because of the 150 foot fit rule uh and the way they i'm in plant you know obviously i'm at plantation at the library because that's the only early voting location in plantation during early voting uh so it's it's hard to engage the voters uh you know and, and what i've noticed today was overwhelming majority of the people are bringing in their mail-in ballots and dropping them off. Yeah. Uh, I talked to several people that are like, we just don't trust the, the postal service. And that's why we did this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's it's, it's, it's different than it was in 2020 without a doubt. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah. I think that, and also I know that they've changed the barrier yardage. So you're further yeah. away. And so, which I actually like, like personally, I think all the cities should have an ordinance like Sunrise, where it's two signs per polling location per candidate. You're not allowed to clutter up, litter up, get all that. It's ridiculous. I think that so when you add the additional boundary, I like that. And as someone who when I used to vote in person, I can't stand walking through the barrage of people. It's like walking the gauntlet, right? You're walking and everybody's like handing out cards. Um, It's interesting because they're they're. I don't I don't know how many people voted today in plantation in person. Probably couldn't have been more than 200, 250. I'm sure the supervisor of election will have that stat tomorrow. Um, there's probably more than 250 signs there. <laughs> so there's probably more signs at the library right now than people that, that physically voted. Uh, maybe I'm off by a little bit, but it it was the voter turnout today was very low. Um, the exact opposite of, of the last cycle. And maybe because it's an off cycle, I don't know, but it's very low term. Yeah, you're definitely, it's a midterm. So you're definitely kind of that. And then we have low voter turnout anyway. What did we get? 11% last time? I think I in the primary, like it was like 11%. Oh, yeah. It yeah. was something like it's abysmal. So it's such a small amount of people. And of those people, I do believe more and more people are doing it by mail. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think um, I read something, you know, not that I'm looking for the next election, but, um, you know, I, I like I, I'm, I'm a political science major. So I, I love politics. And I was reading some recent changes and it looks like that now the legislature has changed the way mailing mail in ballots will work in the future where you're only allow, I think, two cycles and then you have to renew where where now I think it was longer or whatever. So there, there's been some changes to that. I'm not sure you know, moving forward, if the public's going to be aware of it yet, but um, they keep changing that. You know, my, my, my mother-in-law is 90. Um, so vote by mail certainly is, is so much better because, yeah. you know, she's older, it's hard, you know, she doesn't drive. Um, mobility is very limited. And so, you know, and, and I, I like vote by mail because I think that the voters can become educated. You have your ballot at home, you can research whatever you want to research, and you're not just blindly picking people. Um, you know, well, people I, are I, blindly picking people. They're blindly picking people. They're voting for amendments. They don't even bother to read it, oh, even if they did. They don't understand it, and they're yes. still voting. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I'm, I'm a lawyer, and I read these amendments, and I'm like, I have no clue what it's saying. Like because they use the double negatives purposefully. So yeah. that you don't know. And the reality is, and there was like this study done on this about that for the most part, people vote yes. 
So like yeah, when something is exactly. presented, um, whether it's should so-and-so be, you know, retained. So for all the judges, by the way, shout out to none of you, because I vote no, 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 every time. Right. Sick right. of the same people. But like most people vote yes, and they vote yes on all the amendments. And I know the three that were the state ones, and I knew I had researched them, and I knew what I was doing like on those. And then the local ones, I didn't really know them, and I didn't vote on them. If I don't know it, I don't vote on it. I'm not going to screw it up for other people. You know, I'll be at least a net neutral. But well, that, that's me too. Yeah. yeah. Same, same thing with like, like you're saying the judges, right? Well, yeah. I'm a lawyer in the community. Um, if I don't know you and you're running for a judge, that means you're probably not a litigator. You're probably not very involved in the legal community. Exactly. But if I don't, you know, again, like if I don't know a charter amendment or something, I'm not going to vote for it because I just don't, I'm like you, I don't want to help or hurt someone because I just wanted to, to circle, you know, something in, but. Exactly. And there's yeah. people that actually believe you have to answer every question, like it's yes. like SAT or something like that. I'm like, no, it's not like that. Like you can leave things blank. And I always encourage people. It's funny. You should say that about the judges. Cause I actually don't think that judiciary should be elected. I think it should be appointed. Um, I don't support the general public voting for judges, but um, what's really interesting ab about it is that, I just totally lost my train of thought. I was totally in this like zone of the train of thought of, oh, people ask, ask litigators. Like when you're, right. if you're not sure about like the judges on the ballot, always ask a litigator friend. Like I am, a, I'm an attorney, but I haven't practiced here in forever and a day. Um, and even when I did, I really didn't do that. Like most of my stuff was condo association litigation. So like I check with a friend and say, let's go over the judges and stuff. And I'll listen to what they've Otherwise, don't vote on it, people. Don't vote right. for the people with the big sign. It doesn't help us. Right. Well, yeah, because, you know, you, you think about it. Um, judges are nonpartisan, obviously, just like my race, nonpartisan. But judges are held to even a different standard from just an ethical standard of what they can and can't say anyway. So so technically, they, it's hard from the campaign, right? They can say, you know, I'm this. I've been a lawyer for X amount of years. I have a family, don't have family, whatever, but they're really limited. So I, I'm not, on, I, you know, these guys that raise tons and tons of money, it's like, why are you, you can't campaign. What, what are you spending that money on? It's interesting, but. Um, some people use it as ancillary income. I I have heard that. I, I know people that run elections to basically pay themselves and their families yeah. a salary. And it's like, you're taking money as a donation to run your campaign, but you're spending it on yourself. That's I mean, like people that raise a lot of money to run in races that they have no chance in hell of winning. Like certain people do in this great state of a great County of Broward. Yes. We know that. Yeah. You know, people, people, people raise I, I don't, I don't get it. Like, like for me, I remember who's running against you in your seat and don't bother telling me cause it's no point in giving people name recognition. Like, yeah. because it did, I don't remember. I forget who it was in that particular thing, but lots it, of mailers. Lots of mail. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Now well, I know. it's it's like in 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 my race, one of the guys is supported by a pack um, who he claims he knows nothing about, but it's like okay, they have all your information. You mean, is it a pack or a pack? What's well, yeah? I hear what you're saying. Because <laughs> yeah. I would think that he'd have a pack. Very much in the corner. 
Yeah. Well, again, for a city council race, I mean, it's one thing between Stoner and Sortle because it is the mayoral race. But if you're seeing the amount of mailers in a city council race, you would see in a congressional race. Uh, and we have been. It's, it's been gotta, brutal. Yeah, that's that. There's a little something fishy going on with that. Just saying. yeah. It's look, I for for me personally, I, I've never been a huge huge fundraiser because I just I don't know. I, I a I have a hard time you know, asking people for money. Like you know, even my dad, he calls. He's like, hey, how much do you want me to donate, or how much can I donate to your campaign? I'm like, dad, you live in North Carolina. There's zero reason why you should give me money in plantation. It was like I'm your father. I he wants care. to be supportive. That's so nice. You know, I, I know, I know. But so we, we had one big fundraiser set. Um, a lot of people were coming. Uh, Hurricane Ian hits. Uh, I do have a property in the Fort Myers area. Um, and we had a bunch of staff. And so the, the hurricane hit. We lost a lot of property over there. We had six buildings. We lost four. Oh, my um, God. So I just told everybody, don't don't donate to me. Go, go to some, whatever foundation, whatever fundraising thing you want to go to, give to, to the people over there because they needed a heck of a lot more than us. And I've just been self-funding. I mean, I raised very, very little money and I'm trying to, you know, it's a city council race. Um, you know, there's, what is it? 94,000 people live in plantation. Yeah. Um, I think 60,000 registered, which will be 35 or 40 will vote. Um, and, and then you got the, you know, down ballot. A lot of people don't vote down ballot. So, you know, what's it going to be? 30,000 people voted in my particular, um, my group? I don't know. Well, and that's why to me, when I see certain people so desperately wanting a job like that, that they're willing to buy the job essentially, because the amount of money they're putting into getting the job is way worth more than the job. I have to wonder what that motivation is. Because it's it's not it's not about the job, right? Like, so what's going on there? Why are you buying yourself a seat somewhere? Yeah. That's what it looks like to me. P- people say that, and and then look, I think one of the things I, I've noticed in running in the last election and running in this election is um, some people have egos that need to be that need to be fueled or filled, and I think some things become ego driven, and it's it's like. If it makes you feel better because you got this endorsement or you raised this money, then great for you. But how does that help the city? Right. I mean, what is your like, what is your policy for, you know, traffic implantation? What's your policy for development? How do What's you your policy, Wayne? What's your policy yeah. for traffic? It's bad. It's, it's bad. bad. It's it's bad. I, so I live I live off of Peter's. And, okay. and when I go to work every day, oh, I take Peter, Peter's University. Horrible. I now have to go Peters to 441 to 595, which is like the most out of the way route. Mileage you have wise. to go backwards to go. You have to go east to go west so that you avoid the traffic at university. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, you know, when I when I got into this race, um, the first thing I did was I started reaching out to, you know, waste management, the utilities and plantation. Chief Harrison, who's the chief of police here, uh, Chief Todd, who's the. Uh, chief for fire and and I you know asking questions uh, my mother-in-law lives up off of Pine Island in Lauderdale West and you know if you've ever gone out that west entrance on the Pine Island it's it's like that Frogger game when you were a kid yeah the traffic's coming a million miles an hour and you're trying to go out um, 
and like I would think there'd be very bad accidents there with the old people. So, so I was I was at a lady's house last week, door knocking in Jacaranda, um, in Jacaranda, which is right on the other side of Pine yeah. Island. And the lady told me since they've moved there, I think she said two years ago or three, I don't remember exactly, but she said like every week there's a, there's one or two very significant accidents right behind her house. And she said that they've actually been afraid that the accident's going to be so bad it comes through the wall there into her um, house. It's a valid point. We were driving, I was driving in Miramar the other day and literally driving, I saw, I'm like, what is going on there? A horrid accident. And it was a car that drove off the road and through a wall into the back of someone's house that backs wow. up to Flamingo. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was bad or Knob Hill rather. Uh, so that is something that happens. Yeah. Well, most thing. of the, most of the traffic, like when you go Pine Island South, um, University South, a lot of that is passed through traffic. It's not even plantation residents. It's people no. that live in Sunrise or North yeah. and they're going South. Um, you know, it, it, it's rough. And, and talking to Chief Harrison, you know, the city's done traffic mitigation studies and some of the rural, not rural, but some of the, some of the smaller neighborhoods, they put these big, large speed bumps and it's kind of slowed things down, but you know, you've got to figure out, like, I think one of the things, and, and it's the same thing Fort Lauderdale did, right? Because I, I used to work in the SunTrust building right off of Las Olas. Getting in and out of there was horrendous. It's like we build, we build, we build, but nobody thinks, how is everybody going to drive? I think that all the time. Where are they going to go? Where are they going to park? So, so somebody told me, you know, I was asking about this um, down in Fort Lauderdale. I was talking to some of the city commissioners down there, and they were like, well, when we started approving all this, we thought mostly millennials would live there. Millennials don't drive, which is not true. But and so therefore there wouldn't be a traffic problem. Well, the price to rent there is so expensive that how can, you know, young couples or young, you know, single individuals afford to live down there? It's 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 crazy. That Midtown Plantation area is definitely out of control. We were talking about it the other day with Nick, but Unfortunately, the plans of all that have been in play for so long, like we're in play so many years ago. It wasn't like they came up with this just the other year and decided we're going to do this. It's been in the works, but it seems like there could be a lot more done to mitigate the, the damage that it's going to cause. I think in looking back um, at, at the way we, we've got to where we are today, is that people started relaxing some of the zoning issues, relaxing zoning laws, and they weren't really getting ahead of the development. They were waiting until it came to city council, voting and approving, when in reality, you know, there's there's a lot of processes or a lot of steps before it gets to council. Like, address those things then, so A, a developer doesn't waste time and money, you know, um, because if you're not going to approve something, you're going to rezone it, then why are you wasting city resources in leading them down the primrose path? Like, just get ahead of things. Don't wait till the end. Look, I, I think you need development to grow, right? Every city needs to grow. I myself am, am a, a bigger proponent of bringing in small businesses. Like, I think, you know, there, there's too many commercial spots here where, you know, you could find some really nice small businesses that would go there that would help a, fam a, a family in plantation open a business. Like there's a place called Mustard Seed. Um, I, I like, of course, love the Mustard Seed. I, I, don't, 
Yeah. And so, and so that family, you know, I used to coach flag football, um, the mom and dad work in that place every day, Buster butts, you know, that's a small plantation family that, that, you know, people like that deserve to have an opportunity to have a small business implantation. And, and that's what we need more of. Um, I'm not saying anything about the chain restaurants. We all go and eat at chain restaurants. I mean, I've, in the last three months, because of this election, I've eaten there in restaurants way too much instead of eating at home. But you need you need to support small business, and that's we've gotten away from that here for some reason. I don't, you know. Yeah, it's, we it's regularly canvas small businesses. Like just periodically, it'll be like Small Business Saturday, and we'll just go and start canvassing. Like I've canvassed strip malls, like yes. strip malls on strip malls. Um, and when you I, do that, it's really the best way to meet. Honestly, I highly recommend small business canvassing for people that are campaigning. I, I can tell you that I have seen in the last two years some places that you post online and, and they're and if they're like where I'm going to be or local, I'm like, I know they went. To, I'll, I'll check that out. Right. Because yeah. it's somebody I know that's gone there. Um, and I'd rather give a small business my money as opposed to, you know, wasting on other things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, I'm, and, I, and I do real estate and a lot of my focus has really shifted towards commercial because, you know, there's nothing like meeting people face to face and small business support is everything. If you're trying to maintain and grow your, your community, I mean, it, really, it doesn't get more local than supporting small business. It really doesn't. Right. Right. And look, we, we, um, we're starting to get some smaller, um, you know, smaller, smaller restaurants here, smaller gyms here, smaller, you know, boutiques and things like that. Start things are starting to come back, um, and that's what I—that's what I want to see. I want to see um, this area grow, and I think we've had a focus on apartments. Look, there's nothing wrong with apartments, right? We we were all at a point where you know I lived in apartments when I got out of the military when I was in college, um, but apartments most of the time had transitory people living there and they're not going to invest full time in the community. So, you know, we need to look at those things and, and be smarter about how we build. I mean, look at the new places coming up on, on Peters on, on uh, West of West of uh, university. Yeah. You know, used to, you could cut through uh university Peters, go to Pine Island. You can't do that anymore. It's well, even there, the traffic on Pine Island, South of from Peters to 595 at certain times a day. I actually, when I was living in Davie, would go north on Pine Island up to Broward, cut across the hiatus yes. before I get in that nonsense on Pine Island. Like, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's bad. Right, right. Um, you know, we have we have that, we have the development issues in plantation. We have the, the traffic, the ingress and egress, you know, the issues with small business. Um, you know, one of the things that I was a big proponent in when I was running um, in the last election was, you know, I don't, I don't like it. I, I, I'm a huge supporter of our, our, our police department. I, I believe that, you know, the police are what keep us safe and allow us to do what we need to, you know, live our lives. Right. But I also think that we need more community engagement where people see um, whether it's BSO plantation or whatever organization you want to say less militarization and more, you know, back into our communities. Like, you know, right. part of what Chief Harrison does here is he keeps people in local zones that they're familiar with the residents and it makes things more friendly, right? Because if you know someone's cousin, brother, uncle, aunt, or whatever, 
and they're the police officer, you're more likely to talk to them about things that happen as opposed to, oh, I don't know that guy. I don't trust him. You know, he's like in a military uniform. I don't, you know. So I, I, I want to, you know, see more community engagement. Um, you know, mental health is also something that I'm really big into because, you know, I don't think we, we invest enough money in mental health in Broward County. Um, I don't think we invest in mental health in the country. So, yeah. you know, we don't invest in that enough anywhere. Right. And, and, and you can't tell us we don't. We are the richest country in the world. I don't care what you want to say. Broward County has a, a billion dollar budget, whatever it is. It, same thing with these cities. We need to invest in, in mental health because, that, you know, that's a huge part of our, our population that get ignored. Yeah. You know, whether you're veterans and suicide or individuals and overdoses, you know, help those people out. They're not bad people. They just need help. That's right. So, I get no. So it's the idea of I support police for what their function should be, but they're been over their fun. They should not be multitasking in the manner in which they have for so many years. Like there are so many other functions that would be better served by other service workers. And then it's like if police were just doing their job. And right. we don't need them patrolling the mentally ill and the homeless and, and the addicts that are on the street. Like, that's not what we need. Those people right. need help. Right. Well, it's, it's like, it's like, um, okay, today at the, at the main library, there was a guy who definitely had some issues going on. He got, he changed, completely took off his clothes over in the corner from where the early voting was, urinated on a tree, put his clothes back on was screaming loud and everything. And everybody's looking over there. Um, and you're like, so if, if someone calls the police and says, this guy's being a nuisance, they have two choices. Take him to a hospital where he's going to get released within hours or lock him up and put him in jail. Locking him up and putting him in jail is not going to help that man. Getting him real help and real counseling yeah. may help. You know, it's like, but we're, you know, meanwhile, most of the people are sitting there um, you know, there were, there were several people that were like shocked and it's like, that's what's going on. Like, we can't, we can't lose focus of people like that because they're, they're humans, just like all of us. Like, you know, um, something happened in that guy's life and some things aren't going the way they should go, but you know, he's still a human being. And it's so, you know, some people were making comments about it. And it's like, no, that, that guy's a human being. He's, he's a son you know, he may be a brother, maybe a father, who knows, but you know, yeah, you, you can't just crap on the guy and, and call him evil because he's, you know, has, he definitely had some mental issues. Cause he just, you could just yeah. tell. So, All right. Anyway. You convinced me. What? I think you got my vote. Oh, for God. Certainly <laughs> a very progressive guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I, I, you know, people talk about partisan politics all the time and sure. It, if you sit down and you all have like, look, you, you gotta be a pretty, pretty bad person if you don't care about other human beings. Right. I mean, come on. Like, you know, my grandmother, if, if I didn't behave and, and that she's as a kid, she's an old Italian lady. She would pop me with a wood spoon. Like always, you're always going to respect your elders. You're always going to respect other people. And you know what? Sometimes people are having bad days. Doesn't mean you've got to be nasty. Doesn't mean you got to have a bad day. You know, lift people like like be nice. You know, thank you. Be yeah. nice. It's so not that difficult to be nice. Just and if like, you would just approach people from this sort of kindness and right. just compassion, 
And it's I'm right now I'm listening to this book called Raising Lazarus because we're having an author on next week. And it's about the opioid crisis and about how we have failed to handle this because essentially and what I'm gathering is we want to punish them. We want to punish users. We want to punish the homeless because we don't like them and we don't want to see them. So instead of coming at it from a treatment and and loving approach, we treat those things like vagrancy and loitering and all of that in a criminal way because we just don't like them and we want to punish them. That's all. We don't think that they were able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So screw them. So I had a family member. Had a, had a really, really bad addiction. And we all thought, you know, if, if, if she doesn't get help and look, you, they, they've got to want to help themselves to some degree. Right. But we're like, if she doesn't get help, she's she's going to die. I mean, she's either going to die because of an overdose or she's going to die because she's gonna be in a really bad situation and get killed or whatever. Um, she was arrested. She got a couple of different felonies. They did nothing to help her whatsoever. Um, finally, we were able to get the counseling that she needed. And now she's five years post all of that, very successful in society now, has children now, um, is, is, you know, on the right path. But it's like it's like it, the, the system wanted to lock her up and put her in jail when in reality it was a, it was an addiction that that she. Yeah. You know, she probably she shouldn't have done it to start whatever. But she got where she was. And it's like. The system's like, okay, go to jail. You're a bad person. Go hide. Right. You know, we don't want you in society. No, that's not. That doesn't help that individual. And guess what? It doesn't help society. So, no. it doesn't um, help because it's not for profits. Well, the right. But the truth is, is profit. that is that if you were to properly treat um, opioid addiction and the the current crisis that we're in now, and the fentanyl and all this stuff, if you were to properly treat that, it wouldn't be good for big pharma. Yes, exactly. that is why we don't do it properly. And also, we do still have a very for-profit prison industrial complex that still yes. is preferring incarceration to treatment for, I mean, right. look, that's more bodies you pay for per night. in a, And they'd rather do that than help them. Because if you get somebody clean and then you don't have the same recidivism, not much money. they're not as profitable. It's much more profitable to keep them in the system. Well, I think we would be... And we may have just lost. We him. might have lost him. We may. We would definitely be doing ourselves a service. By there we half. go. I can hear you. But we would definitely be doing ourselves a service to elect more non-corporate, regular individuals like yourself. Yes. To the city I council. To there isn't one. Oh. Uh, county commission. Yeah. Mayor, sheriff. You know it. All of these <laughs> nonpartisan races that are infinitely as important, if not more important, than a lot of the statewide and federal races, because this is where you are most directly affected. And so with that said, Wayne, we're obviously always happy to have you on. We really awesome. do appreciate you. We'll on. see you at the polls, I'm sure. Yes, we will see <laughs> Thank you. And if you have a last statement you want to make before you go, just a shout out to anyone who's local who may see this, may be thinking about voting and haven't decided. Guys, early voting has started. Yes. So my so keeps calling my cell phone, so that's why it's like. That's okay. Give your last pitch. Give your pitch for people. Look, um, I'm Wayne Clark, running for Plantation City Council Group Five. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm just a regular person that wants to help our help our city. You know, uh, United States Army veteran. Uh, I've been giving back to our country since I was 17. Now I want to give back to Plantation. Uh, I love this city. 
Uh, there's no other place that I want to come home. I'm fully vested in the city. Uh, I have a 12 year old son, so I'm vested in the in the school system, and I want to make sure that when he grows up, it's the same plantation that we all love today, and it's not changed into some large city that we don't recognize. And so that's why I'm running. I want to, you know, I want to keep plantation plantation. I don't want it to turn into something that we all don't recognize in five or ten years. And so it's it's vital. Um, your local elections, like Peter just said, affect you way more than the national level because the local elections affect you with school board, uh, county commission, city commissions, your taxes, um, how your day-to-day functions and, and, and what businesses you have in your cities. Um, yeah. So I'm running and, and I thank you guys so much for your time. Uh, I always enjoy, I feel like I can talk to you guys for hours. I, I'm exhausted. I've been going no, since six o'clock this morning, and I'm like, I, I have energy now. I, you know, I'm going to go do some actual work. Work. <laughs> well, maybe we are doing a good service. We're, we're, it's a mitzvah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So awesome. Well, thank you guys. Thanks, Wayne. Good to see you, Wayne. Have a good Bye. night. Take see care. You, see you at the polls. Bye bye. <sighs> you had to throw that line in. There. I did. You're doing a good thing. It's fun. Yeah, well, we all know where Jen gets that. Well, those who are in the know understand where it Jen's doesn't matter. From. It doesn't matter. Uh, it wasn't visible, wasn't it? It was not So we're gonna. So before we go, uh, for those of you who are here, and we appreciate you, remember, any money that you donate goes to supporting local nonpartisan races, like our city council races, but also plenty of other things, local nonprofits like Mobile School Pantry, and if you guys are so inclined and appreciate the work that we are doing. We would really appreciate it if you would go to our Patreon, which I, for some reason, I'm it's not. It's up towards the top. Oh, it's at the top now. It's right there. There she blows. Okay, so go to patreon.com forward slash generational change. For as little as $5 a month, you can become a supporter of our channel, as these wonderful people on the bottom scroll, as you can see, do. And if you are feeling a little bit more generous, $10 a month will get you two wonderful items if you are to support us. As you can see, you've got the Lulu sticker and the mansion. Arm Look at how cute. Look how cute Lulu is. Yes. Extremely cute. I know. And very, very awesome. Does that mean we have another uh, sponsor? Not a sponsor, but I told you, and, and I don't understand why some people, and you can be any level. We have tiers, but you can. So when people go to the in-between tier, I boost them up. So ah, did you save it? Yeah. Okay. I just did. So That's welcome back, up. Sam Miller. I think that also, I think that Thank um, you, Sam. they are Canadian. Well, I only say that because when it comes through on the Patreon, it's like Canadian seven. So it's like technically it's probably a five dollar, but it's seven to them. So I give them the benefit of the doubt. That's how I do it. And if if you're (laughs) feeling very, very generous for twenty five dollars a month, we now have three twenty five dollar a month patrons, which is really awesome. They get this wonderful. It really is cute. Here comes the sun jersey. Here comes the sun jersey. And you all know you want one. It is a fifty nine ninety five value. I really do think of us as that. Like I really do think of us and what we're trying to be about is like the equivalent of like when the house lands on the witch and the munchkins all Ding come out and, and it's like scared. everybody and it turns into color and the whole world. It's like I really the feel like it is. Here comes the sun. Like we're really trying to like change the feeling, change the conversation. And if you're feeling really really generous. For $50 a month, you can become, as we were just discussing with Mr. Clark, one of our small business neighbors here in South Florida. Our one and only so far is Apex Insurance Agency. 
based in Delray Beach, small business, home, auto, and even life insurance if necessary. Not always the most common, but certainly for home and auto, if you are so inclined, and Lord knows, especially after Hurricane Ian, you definitely want to make sure that your home is insured as well as your automobile. So please give Apex Insurance Agency a call, and you're probably <coughs> going to be surprised with how good the rates will be compared to the other big box corporations, because we're all about taking down the man. So in this case, Stay small business, what better way to do it? So we have one final segment that we are going to introduce now to our show. And actually, since since Ben is not here, because the, the, the goal of this to me was to kind of doing shorts. So isn't it better if he's here doing it? I mean, we could do it anyway, but I'm just saying. Well, he's so, not going to be here until next week. That's fine. So, guys, we're I'm going to start a segment that is Constitution reading. So instead of like a reading from the Bible. I'm going to be doing readings from the Constitution, and some of them will be shorter than others. Some of them will have more conversation than others. Um, but I just I went through and I reread it the other day. And for those of you who have not read the Constitution, it's quite interesting. Um, I highly recommend it. Uh, so I, I was kind of wondering, and this was what I was asking you, should we do it in order? Kind of like how, you know, congregations do their Bibles. Like you, you go through this, you go through the year. Like right now we just passed Yom Kippur. So, you know, the Jews are now getting towards Simchat Torah and whatever that story is. So like, should we read the constitution in order? I'm asking you guys, like seriously, like we can read it like a Bible. Or do you like the idea of like random random things. So what I think we're going to do though now, just because I'm feeling somewhat nostalgic, we're going to start this with where this particular constitution is from. This was a gift to me from um, the judge that I clerked for in Texas. So I clerked for the Western District of Texas. It was a federal court. Who else was at that? Who, who else did you clerk with, Jen? Just so the audience uh, has an idea. Well, oh, you're talking about the Castro brothers. That was my private clerkship. That was at Aiken Gumstrauss Howerfeld. Uh, that was in the law firm. Say that one more time. Aiken Gumstrauss Howerfeld. Why say that three times fast? <laughs> um, but yeah, that was when I was. That was private. That was different. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this is this was what the judge wrote on the inside of this constitution. So. This is December 30th, 2002. I'm old. <laughs> Dear Jennifer, thank you for your hard work on behalf of the court during your tenure as my clerk. I appreciate your dedication and reliability. I wish you the best of luck in all your future endeavors. Sincerely, Pam Matthey. And I would like to point out that Pam Matthey is one of the smartest people I've ever met, First, which is just whatever. And that when people want to know why I think judges should be appointed and not elected, she is one of the reasons that I believe that because there is a whole different level of quality in federal courts. And yes, there are radical people that get appointed. That is true. And I'm even amenable to the idea of appointments subject to voting for retention, similar to what we have here. Um, but she, I worked with her for about a little less than two years. And um, I never knew her political affiliation. She, I never knew it. Um, I suspected she was somewhat conservative because she did have a picture of herself and her friend Scalia on, right behind her. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything either. But it turns out she was very conservative. And I never knew that. I never knew her political leanings. I never knew her political opinions. I never knew that about her because she was an amazingly good judge. And when she would like, she was as wise as a tree of owls. That's what people used to say about her. And so the fact is, is that when somebody's a very good jurist, you shouldn't know their political affiliation. Oh, it's yeah. irrelevant. Um, and so there is that. So 
anyway, so that's all I have to say about that. If you want, we can start, but I kind of want to hear if people think we should read it from Pam is a smart witch. Pam is very. Where would you guys, would you guys like Jen to pick something at random or do you want her to start from the beginning? I could start from the very beginning. I could actually do the beginning without reading it. Can you do it? Oh, no, no way. Are you sure? We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, Wait, hold on. I actually missed it. This is me being a little, a little bit big. Okay, in order for more establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and establish and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. I think you should start again and just read it, and then we can use that as a short. <laughs> I got to do it from memory. I had, like it's one of those things. I feel like I should be able to do from memory. Um, I, I can do that. And also from the Declaration of Independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident. All right. So since Lana Dell is the only person who has responded, okay. I start with. All right. So here yeah. that that really was. was so, guys, this was and I think it's interesting because you notice it says we the people of the United States in order to form a perfect union. It doesn't say we the citizens. Right. Which is interesting, I think, right? Because there were no citizens yet. So let's just keep that in mind. So who are the people they're talking about? We know it's white male landowners. But we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. It's extremely brilliant, I must say. I've always been quite a fan. It's a very well-written document. And it's amazing to me, like, that the people that were writing this were, like, 30. You know what I mean? Like, it's just amazing to me. And, yeah, James and Madison, how smart, I, I think James Madison was 33, I want to say. Well, James, and for people who don't know, he, James Madison wrote the Bill of Rights. So the first 10 amendments were written by James Madison. But anyway, so guys, that's the preamble. It's really interesting. And most people don't even understand that this is actually where our government comes from. So, you know, well, we could get into this, but I... I find it very interesting. The order that it's written in is done very purposefully. It's very purposeful. It's very purposeful that the very first article after the preamble, Article 1, is for our legislature. Congress gets established in Article 1, not the, not the executive branch, not the presidency, and not the judiciary. The first foremost branch is Congress, and that's because it's the people's house. And Alana says her favorite part is promote the general welfare. Now, if you're if if you're asking me, let's say, what I would say the general welfare is to me, that's healthcare. Yeah, it's healthcare. It's it's our general well-being, and I have yet. And it also is um, educating people because we're all better off when we're all better off. So anything, whenever we're talking about how people are like begrudging of expanding. Um, tuition-free college or anything that would advance us as a civilization, why are there people that think somehow we're better off with people being less educated? Now, the people at the top, no, no, no. For the people at the top, I get that. But for general population, for our peers, for voters, you're not better off with uneducated people. You're just not. They live amongst us. They vote. You're not better off with uneducated people. No, the people at the top, I, I understand clear well why they want us uneducated. 
Um, but yeah. voters, I don't, I don't get it. What is my opinion on 30 progressives urging that? I would have preferred them do it a lot sooner, but this was, of course, much more politically, I guess, you know, calculated on their part that it's the first day of early voting. Um, uh, I also don't like the use of the term of the progressive caucus because there's more than 100 people in it. And yet maybe 12 people in Congress that are actually what we would consider to be true progressives, if that. Um, no, I support any and all means to not be supporting war in Ukraine. So whatever that looks like, I will support any and all of that. Yeah, I think uh, that is a great place. We all need to be more perfect. And, you know, I just, yeah, this is written really well, people. I highly recommend if you don't have one, you know, and probably get yourself a copy. copy. And you know what I was thinking that was funny? And I've never looked whether or not you could have an audio book. Like, I wonder, there's probably people reading it. You could record your own audio. I could record the Constitution. But I, to me, this is like the Bible. Like this to me is extremely sacred and I take it very seriously and I very much care for it. So do I. So it's, I'm a big fan. And, and we could talk about that. Yes, it was all by white men and that, yes, in the beginning, slaves were three fifths and we in all know that now, and now no, we know that's right. No, in the beginning, God created the heaven center. <laughs> Point being, yes, it has flaws in what it's uh, the originators and all that, but how we choose to use this now going forward, that's on us. How we choose to interpret this and how we choose to utilize what this means in terms of liberty and justice, that's on us now. I don't care what they meant in the beginning, okay? Because when they meant in the beginning was women didn't get to vote either. So, you know, clearly we're past that. Well, Barbara Bloom, our local friend, believes that we need to rewrite the entire thing. Oh, some of it's so well written, though, Barbara. I don't know if you've really read it. I've spent a lot of time with this. Mine's highlighted. Um, but there's some really good stuff in here. Like, I, I got to tell you, it's like page turner type stuff. I mean, nothing's perfect. I mean, unfortunately, there's the, you know, belief that, well, it was written over 200 years ago, 250 yeah. years ago. Well, actually, no, to Nate's. It's, an, it's an experiment. It's like 235 in, years ago. In a democratic republic that had yeah. never been really done before in this way as a nation state like that. Like, it's an experiment in something that, is really extraordinary if you think about at the time when it happened and everything was monarchies and it, it just, the concept of it alone was just really revolutionary. And it's, it is really quite smart. And if we actually followed it and we actually took this like seriously, uh, a lot of things would actually be very different. I'll tell you this much, I'd swear on a constitution before I'd swear on a Bible. Oh yeah, no, no doubt. That's the, the, well, that's I'm me. not, well, yeah, no, it's very, I take it seriously. I think we all can learn a lot because again, we've never, most people just don't either get it or don't fully understand it. Uh, but the constitution really is a sacred text. Oh, world. it's awesome. It's a, people like, they don't understand, like they took parts of, they um, took parts of like the Magna Carta in, in what they were creating. Like they really put together this thing. And at the time it was so like forward and brilliant. And I think to not like, you have to recognize that that's not the same thing as saying that all of those people were good people. No, they were slaveholders and they were horrible. A lot of them, but that doesn't negate how good this could be if we would sort of use it, how it's meant to be used. That's what I think. On Wednesday, we are having our good friend from Status Quo, Jordan Sheraton, come on to discuss what is going on with the Amazon Labor Union 
number two in the state of New York, which is up in Albany. Uh, and of course, Bezos is cracking down, union busting, which is illegal, but who's counting? Because Lord knows he'll do it for every one of them. And it is important to learn more about that. Uh, I don't think we have a candidate uh, yet for Wednesday, but we will have We'll find someone. Uh, we will be covering the election uh, on Tuesday, November 8th. And then- we Yeah, will... we won't have a live on the 7th. Yeah. And then on Wednesday the 9th, we will have- uh, Beth Macy. Beth Macy. Beth Macy is the author of um, Dope Sick, Dope Sick uh, the original, the book Dope Sick, and that led to the Hulu series. Which, guys, if you have not seen the Dope Sick miniseries, it's exceptionally good. Uh, I loved it. And then her new book came out in August. I'm listening to it right now. She narrates her own book, which I very much appreciate, and it's called Raising Lazarus. And it's essentially a follow up. Um, to dope sick in a sense of what's happened with the opioid crisis since the Sackler family um, lawsuit, bankruptcy claims, all of that, and where we are now as a nation in terms of treating the opioid crisis. And it's a disaster. It's a disaster. And to be honest, the biggest, of course, obvious intersection is that we don't have health care in this country. And the connection between lack of health care comes up repeatedly on every step of like a person who has opioid use disease or disorder. I forget what they're calling that. Um, every step along the way, there was a failure in our healthcare system for why so many people are in this mess that we're in. And I don't think people realize that what we're dealing with the opioid crisis, these are not people that partied too hard in college, dropped out and decided to just be like shooting up and living under a bridge. Okay, that's not what we're dealing with here. What we're dealing with is a, is, a, is a crisis of gargantuan proportions, way larger than what we deal with, with like mass shootings in this country. Like there have been a million people have died from like the overdose in, I forget how recent of a period of time. Like this is insanity. And it's regular people, all kinds of people, all socioeconomic levels, all across all racial and ethnic divides, this crisis. And the one thing that it really has in common is that the people who are vulnerable to this are being left behind and treated like trash. And we're not taking care of our people. And these people need help and they need to be cared for. They don't need to be incarcerated, which, by the way, doesn't solve the problem. Um, it just doesn't help. And they, I, there's just a lot we have to talk about with this. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm This is what happens. I get so educated on things. I get like focused. Well, I've learned a lot as well. Uh, learned a lot from Jamal this evening. Uh, obviously, always take everything with a grain of salt, but we all know that war is hell and totally unnecessary because, again, it's always for things that... It's profit. Uh, it's a rich man's game, and, and it always will be. And, of course, uh, with that said, uh, kudos to Wayne Clark. Wish him lots of luck. Uh, we need better representation on the city council. We need better representation everywhere. So we hope to play a small role Hi, in that. Um we do what we can. And again, like I said, uh, Jordan Sheraton, Wednesday at 7 p.m. Jordan has to be a little early. Jordan's he got likes fam family. And also Jordan's too. the kind of guy that would probably do the early bird. Seinfeld's Jordan. too good for the early So bird. guys, and we will pick up with article one next time. And we'll talk about that. And, and actually, we'll get through maybe a couple of sections of article one because... Otherwise, there won't be much to talk about. There is a lot of verbosity in some of this. 
I'm sure there is. <laughs> and even if some of it is outdated, as one of our guests suggested, it is. It still is something that is up for interpretation today. Doesn't mean it has to be completely rewritten, but that's what amendments are for. And that's what having. Oh, we're going to talk about that. We don't, we need to talk about how amendments are made. I don't think people really understand that process. We'll get to that. There's a lot of things we don't understand. We're going to, we're going to. So we'll start with article one and we'll note the time of year and it'll be sort of like our religion. It'll be the new year of our constitutional religion year and we'll take it through the year and we'll see what that lands us. And maybe we'll have certain holidays. Like maybe when we get to like article two section something, we'll, we'll label that some sort of constitutional holiday, like article two day. I don't know. And that'll be how we'll do our celebrations. Cause I'm not going to follow the biblical ones. Maybe we could just, I don't know. Okay, fair enough. I think that makes sense. Well, <laughs> at least at least the Constitution is only 235 years old, rather than over 2,000 years old, which is how old the Bible is. Uh, we reevaluate it all the time. We reevaluate it all the time. We're going to re- we're going to evaluate it as we're reading it. Yeah. Join us. Yeah, I love con law. It's brilliant. It really is. So it's we reach we reinterpret it all the time. Just like anything else, it should be a breathing document, like a living, breathing document. But setting forth three branches of government and separation of powers and all that, it's brilliant. At the time, like revolution. We have a lot of problems in this country, a lot. There is a big problem with how the country is run, especially corporate special interests controlling our country. But the American people and the founding document in which we became a country is still there's still something really special about that and the potential to be great yeah is still there and can be we just need to be able to find that that I think you need to be a little bit more optimistic barbara i think we all need to be optimistic even little in the face a little bit optimistic. but remember the night is always darkest before the dawn it always will be and now that's a platitude but it's true so that said lots of platitudes but no platitude sandwiches. Are we going to go to the polls tomorrow? I think we're going to go to the polls and help out. Souls to the polls, as in our souls. Our souls to the polls. Yeah, but we'll survive. So that said, appreciate you guys. Remember to like, share, and subscribe, comment, do all those wonderful things. Yeah, Scott's getting tired. You keep writing the same thing over and over again. You need new material. Uh, But we appreciate each and every one of you who come on and we're nice enough to comment and get this out there. It really means a lot. And we really are grateful for all your support. Please like, subscribe, and share. Commentary was fantastic. Barbara, Metopoly, Scott, don't pay. I like that we have such a wide variety of people. It's all good. And obviously, for whatever reason, you all choose to stick around. Yeah. So you must be getting something out of this. Well, let's get more people. Other than trying to uh, torture us. It'd be nice if we had like 100 people watching in the live stream. We're we're working on it. We're We're working working on it. We'll get there. Thank you, guys. We'll see you Wednesday. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.